Introduction Jonathan Harnish An elite biography It is astounding how individuals who are brilliant go unnoticed due to certain features of their internal and external selves. This is exactly the case with the author Jonathan Harnish in his book, Jonathan Harnish, An elite biography. In the simplest terms, I would compare the book to an infinite merry-go-round due to the sporadic nature and continuous delusions that made me question my own sanity. Jonathan is diagnosed with a whole spectrum of disorders, but one that stands out the most in the book is his diagnosis with schizoaffective disorder. Throughout the book, the author relived his moments of delusions, hallucinations, and despair to give an illustration of what the mind of an individual with schizoaffective disorder is like. The illustration resembled a foggy early morning in spring when walking outside and can't see your hand in front of you. You may not be able to see your hand but you know that it is there. This is the case with the book. Ben knew he was there but couldn't find himself due to the chaos that his own mind created. The main character, Ben, has an alter ego named Georgie Gust who he explores during his therapy sessions with Dr. C. Ben first began to express Georgie Gust when he robbed a bank using only a cell phone. Instead of going to jail he received court-ordered therapy because of his wealthy father. Georgie reflects Ben in certain characteristics like having a trust fund and unstable relationship with his own father. Ben and Georgie are both hypnotized by the character Claudia Nesbitt. This character is not known to be a real person or not, but becomes an obsession of Georgie's. In the fantasies of Ben, Claudia is a recurring person, who is his torturer in sexual and emotional ways. In his delusions, she is always the woman that he is chasing after. Throughout the book, there is a main delusional point, which Ben explains, in great detail. The main delusion that I'll explain is the Wakefield Academy, because each one is repeated but with different settings and character names. Georgie is brought to the Academy by his parents and is introverted until he meets two people, Claudia and Heidi. Claudia, like in many of his other delusions, is the woman that he is infatuated with. Georgie and Claudia build a strong relationship together, and attractions begin to form. However, their relationship is innocent compared to his other delusional scenarios. During this one they are only on a small kiss and hand holding basis. Claudia is the opposite of Georgie in the sense that she is well liked and popular among her peers, but gravitates toward Georgie due to his intelligence. Heidi is Georgie's philosophy teacher, who notices his brilliance and has a special interest in him. Both Claudia and Heidi have a sour past, including the death of Claudia's father and Heidi's sister. Heidi is the mentor for Georgie, who helps him develop his talents and starts to help him put his life together. The ending is both dramatic and heartwarming at the same time. Claudia kills herself by jumping off the cliff that Georgie showed her because of the depression she experienced from her father's death. On the contrary, George wins the Wakefield Academy Memorial Scholarship, which Heidi helped him receive and which will pay for his college. This delusion shows key elements in the disorder that Ben experiences. He longs for a meaningful relationship with people and creates these delusions to help fulfill those needs. In the delusion, he was able to overcome the negative odds, which can be related to his desire to be able to manage his schizoaffective disorder. Throughout the book, 
Ben writes of the adventures that Georgie experiences, which are ultimately delusions. This is a key factor in the diagnosing of schizoaffective disorder. According to the Mayo Clinic, schizoaffective disorder is a condition in which a person experiences a combination of schizophrenia symptoms, such as hallucinations or delusions, and mood disorder symptoms, such as mania or depression. This definition can be applied to the book in many different aspects, referring to the hallucinations and delusions. The idea of Claudia supports the definition. She is placed in numerous scenarios that are all created by Ben's own mind and are fueled with his alter ego Georgie. In one delusion she is a student at a private high school and in another she is the daughter of a wealthy man that lives in New York. Ben also experiences hallucinations and an example that he uses, the landline rings all the time, often, quite a few times and they tell me to pick up. So I do, Harnish, 2014, referring to the voices that he hears, which influence him in different ways. Schizoaffective disorder symptoms vary from person to person. However, the symptoms that Ben expresses throughout the book are, delusions, hallucinations, major depressed mood episodes, mania, problems with cleanliness and physical appearance, and paranoid thoughts and ideas. Each of these symptoms appears throughout the book at different intervals. There are many examples of major depressive mood episodes throughout the book, but one that stands out is when he stated, he slaps the snooze button. Half hit. Half miss. It's all gross. He's sweaty and ashamed. He can't even get up. Another fucking horrible day in the life of me. Georgie Gust, Harnish, 2014. This is a prime example of a depressive episode, his inability to function at a basic level. He couldn't even leave his own bed. With the inability to leave his bed, he wasn't able to keep himself clean or his own home clean. In the context of mania, when Ben robbed the bank with a cell phone, he was in a state of pure ecstasy and believed that nothing would go wrong. He stated that he was only doing it for the fun of it, which could have been because of his crack cocaine use at the time. Lastly, the symptoms of paranoid thoughts and ideas can be related to the book when Georgie states that, superficially nobody notices Georgie, the neighbors are really watching everything that happens at Georgie's place, Harnish, 2014. Georgie believes that the neighbors try and act like he's not actually there when he tries to greet them, however he believes that they watch his every movement. This highlights the definition of paranoia because he has the suspicion and the mistrust of his neighbors' actions, even though he has no evidence or justification to do so. Throughout the entire book, the author gave a vivid description of what life is like with mental illness. He explained his own life while living with schizoaffective disorder and how difficult the disorder actually is. He described his alter ego, Georgie, and his obsessions with Claudia, even though in reality they all were delusions. Each delusion had a similar structure to each other. The author constructed the book so that people who have never suffered from mental illness could feel the effects that they cause. He gave me an idea of what living with schizoaffective disorder is like. I not only gained an understanding of schizoaffective disorder but also an understanding of my own self through his words of wisdom. He gave me the clear understanding of how valuable this life actually is and how we all, 
as human beings, have our own ups and downs. We all have our faults, but we have to continue to drive past them to become better individuals. Ben pushes to become a functional individual and understands that some days will be bad and some will be good. The main point that I learned about schizoaffective disorder is it is like an infinite merry-go-round. The disorder will continue to spin and spin and distort an individual's perception, but the speed of the spinning can be slowed to give moments of clarity. William Thompson Living with mental illness? Better doesn't mean cured sometimes. I feel that I don't know what's going on or that I don't care about anything. I am confused by my feelings, because I'm not able to explain how I feel, except for the emptiness and I feel that no one is really there for me, even if they are, or that nobody understands me anymore. It feels like I have nothing to look forward to. I'm a compulsive liar, but I don't understand why I do it. I create intriguing stories about myself, to the point that I can't even tell who I really am anymore. I lie to feel better about myself. Maybe, once I realized I'm a spectacular person just the way I am, I will stick with the truth. I also try to respect people, including myself, who maybe don't deserve it. This does not reflect the other person's character but reflects mine, and I miss the mark, sometimes, out of frustration, questioning why, it's always me who tries to be right. I feel that other people are wrong at times, but at the end of the day, respect is better than lowering myself, even the tiniest bit. I'm better than that. I just woke up from another nap, and I write down my scattered thoughts about emotional pain while in a state of complete confusion because of the disorder currently in my life. Of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most, though it might, just might, return even if only for a second. I believe I have lost the battle with my own mind, but I still carry on feeling completely alone in the enterprise, which is where I want to be. I want to be alone. It is the closest thing I can think of to pressing the pause button on life, especially in the relationships I have with other people. I am a bad person to my wife. My biggest fear has always been that eventually she will see me the way I see myself. I can't stop thinking that I'm saying goodbye to my own sanity. I believe I have lost this war, perhaps a long time ago. My mind has always been a dark place and somewhere I would not want my worst enemy to be, but despite all of these feelings, I still battle depression and man, am I tired? I want to feel like me again because, for a long time now, I have felt like someone else. The old me disappears as I fall deeper and deeper into oblivion. I need to be alone without any more external drama or chaos. I do not know how to deal with this feeling, except through anger, disdain, or withdrawing completely. When I can, I try to keep up with my art because it has saved me. For my own good and the good of others around me, I believe I need to be alone but not to be lonely only to find some enjoyment or interest in my free time that let me be myself. Otherwise, I serve no purpose and certainly no positive purpose. I don't think I was ever meant to be or have ever served any purpose, except to communicate through my art, mainly my writing, to share these feelings for those who cannot. I have nothing else to lose.
Sometimes, I feel the stress of everything in the world trying to claw into my mind, all at once and constantly, and I need something to help push me through life. Something like writing, or maybe music, or at times, just sleeping and not participating. I have miserable feelings inside me that I can't seem to control, though sometimes it feels like I can. Continuously, I fail and I hurt people, causing others anguish, wretchedness, hatred, and more. I feel that I cause the same in myself, and so I stand back. I no longer interact with people due to this bizarre conflict I do not know how to handle. I continue to fight for my wife and stepchildren and my many pets, but not for myself, because in reality, giving up is just not an option. It never has been. So far, though, I have lost this fight. I walk away from day-to-day -day life because I want peace, but day-to-day -day life, and my past, keeps following me. I try not to argue with the people in my life, and I still hope for something. I just don't know what I'm hoping for, maybe peace of mind and no more distress or conflict. If I do pull through the chaos, it will be because I had to be my own hero, once again. It has to be that way because no one else can destroy me, when I destroy myself, or rather the schizophrenia destroys me. Please just save me. Fix me. I have fought this battle more than once, and I have still not won. It creeps up on me and terrifies me to pieces. That's enough for now. I am being as honest as I can possibly be. Love me, hate me, hurt me, or kill me. I will still keep going. I'm still here, but entirely confused about how to relate to other, real people. I am a mental health problem, not a person. I am schizophrenia. I am no longer a person, not anymore. I sit back and watch the world go on around me, and I am a failure. The only place where my dreams become impossibilities is in my own mind. I can't see what is actually possible, even when that something is better than the hand of cards I have been dealt. The war against my own mind exists on a continuous loop and that is why I keep fighting, even if nobody is aware of it. I have been absent from the external world and lost within my broken mind. This is called depression, schizophrenia, or so many other names. I call it war. I will leave it at that for now because I know this will barely make sense to other people, though I could be wrong. I can't give up, and I won't give up. Considering I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD, borderline personality disorder, Tourette syndrome, diabetes, anxiety and depression, a rare blood disease, dyslexia, and cancer, I am doing okay. I'm fine, but I'm just not happy, and I'd rather be honest than impressive. This morning I wrote on a post-it note, Dear life, you suck. I am feeling a little bit better and stronger now. Still, I am not fine. I am sad, sick, hurt, angry, mad, and disappointed. Still, do you know what? I don't think people understand how stressful it is to explain what's going on in your head when you don't even understand it yourself. I am not sure if I am feeling better or if I'm just used to being sick. I did go on a spending spree last night, spending a little over $10,000. 
my inheritance was stolen due to family conflict and inheritance, medical, and other power of attorney rights, but I'll put on a smile and move on. It will hurt, but I will survive. Sometimes, I don't feel like living. I don't want to kill myself. I just want it all to stop or go away. I want to be calm. I want to be happy. I feel tired, the kind of tired that sleep can't fix. Every so often, I hope I fall asleep and never wake up. I'm scared. I'm scared of people. I'm scared of doctors. I'm scared of disease. I'm scared of life. I'm scared of death. But most of all, I'm scared of me. All I really need is the right medication, with side effects that won't kill me or make me worse, and doctors who listen and care. I need family members who won't judge me and are willing to help me with my journey, friends who try to understand. I need my bed, comfy pillows, a heating pad, blankets, a good night's rest, and above all, a fucking cure. Things change, but it doesn't mean they get better. People with depression cannot snap out of it. People with depression cannot snap out of it. My moods change frequently, and I am currently depressed. There is nothing more depressing than suffering from depression and still feeling sad. So, what's the point? Will it pass? No doubt. I forget what it's like to smile, and I mean for more than a couple hours now. I'm talking about now, not later. I forget what it's like to be a lovely or loving person, or if I ever was such a person at all. One of love, of goodness, of graciousness. I forget how it feels to truly live, much less how to live life to the fullest. I just exist. Right now, I simply exist, with my pulse and my breath and maybe some tears, if I am even able to let them roll a river down my face and flood the seas and the world with them to get them out. I try to get myself out of this mood. This life. This episode of depression. Sure, I'll return to normal. Sure. Still, I have temporarily lost the point of living a life, pretending to smile or laugh, or getting a joke every darn hour when there are people around me who only want to see me happy. Well, I am not happy, and overall I have not been happy for most of my life. If anything, I glamorize the past, and even the present, sometimes. It'll pass, but that's not the point. The point is how I feel now. The point is right now. Yes, I know it will pass. I know people love me, but I do not currently know what that should feel like. I just can't remember. I feel so lost. Gone. Yet I continue, and therefore I inspire. I'm often told, but I am still depressed. I am still in this chair, writing out this rubbish, because it gets so overbearing I can't tell you. I'm not alone. I know that, too, but that feels and sounds so contrived and lackluster, uninspiring to me right now. I pretend to be so damn nice and funny and charming for others, just for them, so I don't lose a Facebook friend or whatnot. Nevertheless, I have zero real-life friends. I'm not sure if I ever have had any. Well, maybe, sort of, but they probably felt sorry for me. Who cares? I don't know. I am not even my own friend. This has been true for most of my life.
I got into a good school, which I didn't even belong in. I lived my former Hollywood life, which never did anything for me worthwhile. I exaggerate about how cool the time in my life was, way back, back in the day. Now, I can barely move. I can barely see. I've been here many times, so don't worry about me. Just send a hug, as if I'd ever feel any real hug. Virtual hugs are probably better because there is no effort involved. No feeling, and I can just barely feel. This is why I write this kind of stuff. Just keep writing, says that little voice in my head. Get it all out, all that you can. Do it now. 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 Get me out of right now. Remind me of some clever quote or cliché. Reminding me how they are just reminders over and over again of how hard it actually is, in this case for anyone, to do, let go, move on, it'll pass, it'll pass, and so forth. I pretend to live, pretending to be myself, as if that would ring true. Oh, that's just your mental illness speaking, some say. Well, then I guess I am just one full bag of happiness, and I am over it. Did I snap out of it? Of course. And again, I will get out of this depressed state, just not now, and I will do it only to see it return. I am incapable of getting but one positive thought out, so I am sorry for not pretending right now, even for just a minute. Maybe I still am pretending. I am sick, twisted, and wrong. I don't belong. Other people have it worse. I suppose I don't deserve or have the right to be depressed. I need to think about them. Poor them. Hate me. Sometimes I pretend to love the life I live. What's the point? As Faulkner said, basically, the reason to live is to get ready to stay dead a long time. Okay, thanks, Mr. Faulkner. Seriously, what is the point? Tell me about it. About how we are all just here winging it, trying to get by. I am not getting by. I watch the clock and wait, and wait, and wait for tomorrow. Oh, how sad and pitiful. Get rid of this guy, this guy Jonathan. Hell, I can't even walk two feet without being right here with myself, as myself. There is no escape. I just know hope. It's that same hope that gets me and brings me back here. For now, tell me the point and I'll tell you why I am so damn me, but it doesn't mean I'm really proud of this. Make me understand you as I tried to do the same. People with depression cannot snap out of it. Until my next episode, and otherwise until next time. Jonathan Harnish, my big-headed autophobia Jonathan Harnish, an biography Ben Schreiber has Tourette's Syndrome, which causes him to display uncontrollable tics and hops, and to stutter and swear inappropriately. Bullied through his school years, he can never form strong friendships, especially with women. In his late twenties, he plunges into a downward spiral of drug and alcohol abuse, which culminates in an attempted bank robbery. After he is arrested, his psychiatrist, Dr. C, quickly sees Ben's affliction as much more than Tourette's. Inside Ben's head lives Georgie Gust, Ben's alter ego. Georgie is obsessed with his manipulative but extremely sexual next-door neighbor, Claudia Nesbitt. 
Ben is desperately searching for the unconditional love he never received as a boy. He finds it easier to retreat into his mind to share Georgie's sick obsession with cruel and abusive Claudia than to deal with his real issues. It is up to Dr. C to help Ben face the buried terrors of his childhood so that he can finally let go of Georgie and reduce him to the literary character that writer Ben wants him to be. Amazon.com Jonathan Harnish An Ali biography was a confusing, perplexing, interesting, complex, and compelling book. It is in the mainstream fiction category, but how much is fiction and how much is true biography? I found myself feeling frustrated and at the same time fascinated by Harnish's story of his life dealing with schizophrenia. His alter egos are not always apparent at first, and isn't that sort of the point? He had, and has a hard time distinguishing reality from fantasy. The writing seemed to be in a spiral and I found that many pages, segments, appeared over again in the later sections. This certainly gave the feeling of being inside the mind of a schizophrenic, but it makes for difficult reading and understanding. The other characters in his life, Georgie, Claudia, Heidi, Mr. Clean, Kelly, were constantly changing and morphing and it was hard to get a handle on them. Again, this can give a sense of what it is really like in his head, but makes it hard on the reader. I would have this in my library, but I think it might need some discussion to go along with it. Judge, Second Annual Writer's Digest Self-Published eBook Awards Genius! I love this book. As an undergrad, I was required, emphasis on required, to read Jean Jeanette's Our Lady of the Flowers, a very early example of transgressive fiction, and although I could appreciate the literary value of the book, it was almost impossible to read because of Jeanette's approach to his characters. He didn't seem to like any of them, and his prose seemed more to ridicule than explore their foibles. As a result of reading Jeanette's work so many years ago, I have never thought I liked transgressive fiction, never thought I'd read it again, and then along came Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography. Wow! What a difference! Harnish's Georgie Gust is such a beautifully written, tragic character, which the reader can't help but cheer on. You want Georgie to be happy. What an accomplishment. Harnish wades into a genre in which disconnected, ugly sexual encounters predominate, and yet you just want Georgie to get it together, be happy, and see the world as his friend. Harnish's sense of the inner machinations of human experience spring to life through his text. An almost ritualized sojourn, much like the classic hero's journey, takes place before the reader's eyes and leads to insights both sanguine and disturbing. I confess tears fell in some spots, as Ben comes to know what happened to him as a child. True to the form of modern literature, Harnish uses all tools available to catch the reader in a spider's web of story while exposing humanity's own false prophets. Harnish has chosen the perfect way to express what a mentally ill mind actually feels like. For example, the repetition of Georgie's morning routine, with new variants every time, his first dates with Claudia, over and over again, all give a disturbing and very uncomfortable edge to the book that left my brain spinning by the end. It's brilliant. Truly a great read. Anonymous 
sex, drugs, and schizophrenia The collected writings of Jonathan Harnish mark a magnificent contribution to the public understanding of mental illness through a masterpiece of transgressive fiction with a heart. The general reader is finally able to see mainstream literary author Jonathan Harnish at his best. Sex, Drugs, and Schizophrenia contains the works of 2014, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography and second alibi, The Banality of Life, in one complete streaming narrative. The monumental scale of Harnish's achievement through adversity flourishes and can now be appreciated in this diverse, invaluable, and thought-provoking collection of fragmented fiction which will make your brain spin as Harnish's sense of the inner machinations within the human experience spring into life through the written word. It forces one to question reality and step into another world wanting the protagonist and his alter ego to get it together and be okay. The author reveals himself through a series of alibis in the day-to-day -day meetings of multiple personalities, a corner of psychiatry that is hardly understood and shedding light on the experiences of schizophrenia in a language that the non-sufferer can understand, albeit from the author who suffers himself. Not for the faint of heart, this fictionalized account of a disparate mind triumphs. Amazon.com Sex, Drugs, and Schizophrenia is a novel that investigates the fractured mind of a schizophrenic. The narrative uses diverse literary mechanisms mixing elements such as journal entries, a screenplay, a straightforward melodrama involving a Tourette sufferer at a private school, occasional celebrity name-dropping and the dapper figure who, when asked his opinion of a party, responds, I'd scarcely be a good judge of that. My life is taken up with writing. Making sense of it isn't really the point. A repetitive, explicit, fractured, lengthy, and honest overall effect that mimics the confusion of its title. Kierke's Reviews Ali Biography Inauguration Prefatory Note I open my eyes, and the room is on fire. Completely unconcerned, I, Ben, watch the fire grow larger and larger, then shrink and die out, revealing Georgie Gust, my alter ego, sitting on a matching mound of dirty clothes. I light a cigarette. I thought you quit, says Georgie. My nurse and doctor watch me, shaking their heads in disapproval. Kelly doesn't know about my obsession with Claudia Nesbitt, or, rather, Georgie's obsession with her. I haven't told her much about the spells that haunt me, either. I haven't mentioned a lot of things to her. I haven't mentioned how much I struggle to write anything original that comes from the heart. Or that all I hear is the chaos of the devil and the angels and the voice of Georgie dictating my every word and action. That I'm nothing but a trust fund baby with an addiction problem, a constellation of lurid sexual fetishes that shrink into petrified silence in the presence of any actual women, and the half-dozen psychiatric diagnoses ranging from Tourette syndrome to schizoaffective disorder. Intermission in brief in his groundbreaking 805-page Turner Ali biography, Author Jonathan Harnish's struggle with his condition is interlinked with the incomprehension of non-sufferers, and this provokes him to explain his reality. He has explored a range of media, including film, music, 
And now the written word, to help the general public understand exactly what it feels like to suffer from schizophrenia. By fictionalizing the day-to-day -day meetings of multiple personalities, he is illuminating a corner of psychiatry that few understand. As an author with schizophrenia, Harnish is ideally placed to share the unusual perception commonly defined as mental illness. In Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, available on Amazon, Harnish is not dealing with an altered reality but a double reality, and his main characters, Ben and Georgie, perfectly illustrate how two lives can share their same body. I'd call it a pastiche of many different genres into one, so here's a hesitant preview into the little sandbox of my world, my literary playground. Hope you enjoyed and write a review, or not. If not, then, this three-pound book still looks terrific on my bookshelf, I must say. So, I'm cool with it. I have quite a few copies. If you'd like a signed one to keep or simply to resell, if not read, at cost, write me, you'll find a way. And I'll send one out. Busier than shite these days, but loving, clever pun, Dr. C? My fans and foes, and Claudia's toes, you'll see what I mean. So read on. Right on. Onward bound, and always be on fire by default. Jonathan Harnish News August 16, 2014 Abel Nab's author interview with Harnish Jonathan Harnish is a legend in the world of mental health education and advocacy and a Twitter phenomenon with over 100,000 or so followers, Ian Abel explains at Queensland Mental Health. He is someone I have gotten to know really well in the Twitter sphere. When I found out he was launching a new book, I had to get in touch and find out more about it. Nabil is a prominent mental health advocate in Australia. His eagerness to grill Harnish, a fellow advocate for schizoaffective disorder sufferers, is palpable. Harnish's completion of his first novel has caused chatter on the Bush Telegraph, but Nabil was the first from down under to nab an interview with the author. Nabel's involvement with the issues surrounding mental illness began when his wife was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. Harnish has personal experience with the condition, and as an author with schizophrenia, he is ideally suited to produce an illuminating study of the disorder. When people face situations that are difficult, challenging, or frightening, it is said that they put on a brave face to get through them. Ben Schreiber Harnish's protagonist, went one step further when faced with obstacles in his life and put on a whole other person. Georgie Gus was Ben's braver champion. However, as always happens in cases of schizophrenia, this alter ego put more effort into asserting his identity than to fighting in Ben's corner. Georgie is an invisible friend who never went away, eventually asserting himself as an independent being, albeit one who occupies Ben's body. It has to be noted that, although Ben has a tendency to hide, he too asserts his right to his identity. He did not fade away and assume the name and attitude of George Gust. This resulted in these two separate men living parallel lives in the same physical existence. Although the novel is a work of fiction, Harnish admits that much of the book stands as a written account of his own experiences. Written as transgressive fiction, this story is now shedding light on the experiences of schizophrenics in a language that the non-sufferer can understand.
The novel's entertaining and accessible style makes it a must-read for anyone interested in psychiatric thrillers and for those Australians who would like to learn more about dissociative disorders. Harnish is a sufferer of a comorbid schizoaffective spectrum condition, and this was the inspiration for the novel's plot. He has explored the insights brought to him by his condition to become an accomplished mental health advocate film and TV producer, musician, and visual artist. Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, an interview with the author Hi, Jonathan, Ian Nabble from Queensland Mental Health, at ULDMH on Twitter here. How are you? Jonathan Harnish, crazy busy, as usual, promoting my book, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, ULDMH. I have a few questions for you. J.H., sure, go ahead, shoot away. Q.L.D.M.H., we have been communicating and chatting on Twitter for a while now. However, for those who don't know who Jonathan Harnish is, can you provide some background about yourself? J.H., who am I? Ah, the big question. I have no idea. I'm a complete hermit. I hear from most that I'm too intense. And yet, when I fight the agoraphobia, in public I turn into a social butterfly. Charming and funny, often with a warped sense of humor. I consider myself just one down-to-earth guy, just a person like anyone else. Maybe a little different, that's all. I'm a hopeless romantic with a dirty mind. I laugh. I laugh because I can't think of anyone I've ever known who hasn't told me that I am the most interesting person they have ever met. Then the Dasiqui spokesman snagged that spot, so, just for laughs, I finally bought a t-shirt that says, the second most interesting man in the world. I'm a prankster who admits he can dish it but not take it. And I'm often very childlike, good with kids and animals, temple grand in style with our horses, for example, and I speak baby talk, as I call it, when with children. I get along with animals and children the best. People frighten me. Real people do, for that matter, and I detail a great deal of this in my story. I often dissociate to rid myself of bad memories and delusional thinking, and yet I test high for metacognition. So, I am often very aware of my illness and symptoms. The main character in Ali biography, Georgie Gust, is actually based on my own alter ego, as I call him, though his real name is not Georgie. His real name I keep private. I feel like an open book, sometimes to a fault, so I took the liberty and gratification of fictionalizing my story, and with good reason. My mind often frightens me, too. It's all a balancing act. I always keep busy with a project, usually artistic, and my moods, interests, and states of mind change at the drop of a hat. I rapid cycle around 30 times a day, and I'm an insomniac. But that fuels my writing a great deal. QLDMH, you have a really interesting and challenging history, and your schizophrenia is something you have learned to manage and continue to live with every day. What inspired you? What motivated you to write a book, and what were you hoping to achieve out of it? J.H. I've been writing all my life. In 2006, 
I had an erotic short story published in an anthology called Saxius Souls, Erotic Stories About Feet and Shoes. Writing erotica was easy and fun, and short. A great deal of my schizophrenic experiences, I find, are sexual by nature. I have several friends who have the same illness as me who have said the same about their schizoaffective disorder manifesting itself with sexually based thinking and delusions. I know everybody is different, but I find the subject of sex fascinating. I've even studied the subject a great deal. In literature, it allows me to strip down the characters naked, literally, and dive right down into their core. I think that's where my talent might take a bow in my book. After the pedicure story, my therapist suggested I should keep writing, so having written another short story of the same genre, and straight away it was published, I felt I was onto something. So, I kept writing such stories along with my diary, memo notes, screenplays, and many other artistic works, but I kept a great deal of them for myself, realizing, at that point, that I could write a book. And so I put a great deal of my stories together, rooted from that first story, easy steps to a perfect pedicure, and I kept going, as jarring as everything read at the time. I kept putting pieces together until I had several thousand pages of writing in prose, compiled them, and added a through line or two. Everything else I was writing professionally I felt was stolen from me by Hollywood. It's a brutal industry, which I soon left. Then, in 2006, I met my wife, who was actually one of my editors based in New Mexico while I was in Los Angeles. I relocated to New Mexico and got married in 2008. Here in New Mexico, I made a couple movies for TV as writer and producer. On the bus and wax, both of the storylines in these particular films I was able to incorporate into my Ali biography. I filmed a few smaller pieces, short films, and a few documentaries. One, in particular, was a documentation of my break with reality from 2009 to 2010, called, I Am Jonathan. It took me about a year to recover from my psychosis with proper treatment, therapy, and medication. The year 2012 simply flew by, and in 2013, I decided to head back to the book. I had narrowed my writing down to six separate but eerily similar books intended for a series of six separate but similar pieces. I later decided to publish them all together as one significant novel. I invented my own way a style to creatively craft the parallels and connections between the original six stories in order to follow my desire to write one long epic, a true psychiatric thriller, my masterpiece, and perhaps my legacy. And it worked as a whole, in one masterpiece, as I saw it myself. I sigh, grin, and say it with a wink because I am proud. I allow myself to be proud of my work. The final product is entitled, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography. It was then, in 2013, that I put all the pieces together, wrote the book, and sent it out to several editors. I was a note chaser, correcting everyone's notes until it became overwhelming. I even went as far as incorporating editors' notes within the prose. And it worked, truly breaking the conventional rules of writing. And again, it seemed to really work. So, if this makes sense chronologically, 
I wrote the majority of the material that I gathered for the 2014 release of Ali Biography in 2006 but really dug into putting the 800 some odd pages together in 2013, removing what I could. And I was done. It was done. And I didn't look back too much. Onward bound. I put the word out without any unrealistic expectations. QLDMH. I'm pretty sure that very few of my readers have ever started, let alone finished, writing a book. I know from people I speak to in my own bucket list, which includes writing a book, that many people want to or dream of writing one but think it will be too difficult. So, for those people, what were the biggest challenges you faced while you were writing it? And how did you overcome these challenges? J.H. Putting the scraps and scribbles of wordplay together to make a coherent story, Ali biography, from all the written material that was otherwise scattered, jarring, and out of place, I put a real puzzle together, and I think I did well. I finally just put it out with excellent help from Etika Press in the UK, where a great deal of my audience is. And I had what I wanted, my masterpiece off of my bucket list. And now it is. QLDMH. How would you describe the writing process and then the never-ending editing? JH. I wrote only when symptomatic and sleep-deprived. Call it crazy. I do. And I love every minute of it. QLDMH. After all the hard work and the enormous amount of time and energy it takes to write a book, how do you feel about the finished product? JH. I have tremendous difficulty reading. In the 6th grade, I was at a 12th grade reading level. By 12th grade, 6th form, I was at a 6th grade reading level. So, I haven't read back my book. I just wrote it and write. I often don't read back what I write or watch my own movies or TV shows. For example, I just do them and am done with them. Onward bound always. QLDMH. Who have you written the book for? Who is your perfect reader and why? J.H. Formally, its target audience is adult readers who enjoy the transgressive style that best depicts the intricacies of a mentally ill mind. I had thought about adult readers who enjoy transgressive fiction like Fight Club and other works, until many who had read my book prior to publishing suggested that its audience was much larger, medical people included. QLDMH. I notice the incredible buzz on Twitter and Facebook about your book. Is that an accident, or did you come up with a pre- and post-release media campaign? How did you manage to create the buzz around the book launch? JH. I have quite a following on Twitter, and I love it. It helps me narrow my thoughts down to 140 characters. I actually began thinking in tweets, though I feel pressure to speak or even write, for that matter, I, too much and inconsistently, change from subject to subject at the drop of a hat. Writing and rewriting helps me put that part of me under control given my flighty ideas, which are symptomatic of my illness of schizoaffective disorder, and I tend to talk too much. Basically, my executive order thinking is in deficit. And one way I have coped with this has been writing screenplays because I'm trained in screenwriting and it is very structured. I did actually write a great deal of the initial drafts of Ali biography in screenplay format. It kept everything in place.
And rule number one for me is threefold. No outline, no censor, and writers write, so just keep writing. If I don't, I feel like I might die. It's kind of like that. My definition of an artist, thoughts trail off. I laugh. One day, I took an hour and put up a press release in the US to fight fears of possible success. It was just for fun, as with everything I do. Originally, in one month, I reached 5,000 people, whom I allowed to download Jonathan Harnish, an elite biography off the internet because I believed I wasn't writing Harry Potter but more of a book for a limited audience. I was proved wrong when I received a great deal of feedback in the month I had published online for free, and so a month later, I went ahead and released it in association with the publisher on Amazon and elsewhere, taking others' advice, which is rare. To sell it. Every now and then, I tend to repost the novel as a free download online without notice. I talk about my values in my independent film online, called, Being a Mentally Ill Artist, and I believe art should be free. They're my thoughts, so I allowed for both. The free version online every now and then and the paid version, I have a hard time making up my mind, truth be told, with any decision I might make, for that matter. A lot of people with schizophrenia, for example, have financial difficulty, and so I'm still thinking about it all. But I plan to see how I fare as a professional writer at last. I find less stress is better. Most things cause me stress. Even this interview. But I am fueled by stress, mostly in my art. Pretty strange if you ask me. Everything's a paradox, a dichotomy, and a metaphor in my little world, my literary playground. QLDMH, so, in summary, looking back at what it has taken for you to write the book, would you do it again? Why? J.H., sure. Why not? I may decide to publish another one, at least traditionally. It might be a book I've already written but is still incomplete, or it will likely be brand new. We'll see. I never know what comes next. I'm rolling with the flow. It's rather zen, and it works. I have a guesthouse of file cabinets and hard drives in storage with writings from every single day since age 5 and 34 books of the Ali biography story, or series, in the vault. I will get to them, but I'll work on whatever I feel is right at the time. I'm pretty free-ended. I just finally allowed myself to be assertive and proactive about creative control. And once that was done, I released Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography and kept writing, preparing for my next novel. I noticed I could do a great deal more than I ever thought I could just with this one book. It was indeed a long and tedious project. I learned a great deal, so sure, I'll do it again. I'll just be upfront about it, so prepare. The second one is often no match for the first, but I always keep in mind a negative review is perfectly fine. I am okay with anything. Otherwise, I will deal with it. If I figured out how to survive after my last psychotic break, I believe I am capable of much more. Things get clear overall. Writing and publishing this novel was like boot camp. I feel prepared for more, always keeping busy. As long as I own it, it's mine.
It can't be stolen like when my condition was much worse. I was prone to be taken advantage of, and I surely was. I lost everything and every penny. And somehow, I made it back all right. Life itself is such a learning experience and a wild ride. Many days are difficult, but I always seem to bounce back. I think that goes for anyone. Schizophrenia, or, more precisely, schizoaffective disorder, takes my experiences to a different degree. Everything seems askew, and that fascinates me. It feels like a perpetual LSD trip, and that is what I draw upon in the transgressive style in which I write. It's bigger than life, and I think that makes for great storytelling. QLDMH. And to finish off, if you had one takeaway that the people reading your book could have, what would it be? J.H. One word, hope. Plain and simple. Have hope, even if you do not know what you are hoping for or want or in whatever place you are. For me, it's easy, like a mantra. Just hope. It's always my answer for anything I do or feel or say. Keep the hope and faith alive and everything will be okay, even if whatever it is comes back again. Things change. I like change. Embrace the moment. It's all we have. QLDMH. Thanks for taking the time to respond. I'm sure that, between us, we can come up with a super-focused and targeted blog post that will be successful in driving traffic for you www.queenslandmentalhealth.com at Jornish Jonathan Harnish, author of Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, second alibi, the banality of life, and sex, drugs, and schizophrenia. June 25, 2014 Personal Experience Illuminates Schizophrenia Harnish's sense of the inner machinations of human experience spring into life through the text writes one reviewer, an almost ritualized sojourn, much like the classic hero's journey, takes place before the reader's eyes and leads to insights both sanguine and sometimes disturbing. True to the modern form of literature, Harnish uses all tools available to catch the reader in a spider's web of story while exposing humanity's own false prophets. Truly a great read. Dissociative disorders have become well-known themes in literature since the release of Sybil in 1973. The public has become familiar with the syndrome of alternative personalities and the issues that arise when some alters choose to overcome their situation by handing over their being to another person. Jonathan Harnish introduces the reader to Georgie Gust, the friend, contact, and alter ego of Ben Schreiber. Georgie is real and Ben can see him. However, this is but one string in Harnish's bow. The average reader may know that the hosts of multiple altars are unaware of their existence, although the various altars know intimately of the host's life and often speak disparagingly of the original identity's existence. This is not the case with Georgie. Two personalities sharing the same body usually succumb to jealousy and conflict. The introduction of a romantic interest into the two men's lives could be expected to result in a schism. Although the alluring Claudia attracts both men, Ben is content to thrill in the experiences that Georgie enjoys from his sexual contact with Claudia. 
practitioners and students of psychiatry will find this exploration of schizoaffective disorder a fascinating insight into the mental conflicts and defense mechanisms of sufferers of the condition, and the lay reader will enjoy the plot twists of this psychiatric thriller. The premise of the novel gives rise to a transgressive style, which is most familiarly expressed in the works of Jean Genet. However, readers that find Genet difficult to follow will find a more palatable example of this genre in Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography. The novel is an inspirational and brilliant tearjerker arising from the genius of an intricate, mentally ill mind. Jonathan Harnish suffers from schizoaffective disorder and associated comorbidities, which serve as the inspiration for his novel. Harnish has exploited the insights brought to him by his condition to become an accomplished mental health advocate, film, and TV producer, musician, and visual artist. PR Web July 1, 2014 Schizophrenic author Harnish breaks ground in a Lee biography, People Frighten Me. Real people do, for that matter, and I detail a great deal of this in my story. I often dissociate to rid myself of bad memories and delusional thinking, and yet, I test high for metacognition, declared Harnish in a recent interview. My mind often frightens me, too. It's all a balancing act. He explains. In a few sentences, Harnish illustrates, with his personal experience, the fascinating irony of dissociative disorders like schizophrenia. He wants to hide but ends up hiding behind himself. The average person on the street may wonder what Harnish is talking about in this quote and in other statements he makes about his book. He is talking about his own experiences with schizoaffective disorder. Harnish's struggle with his condition is interlinked with the incomprehension of non-sufferers, and this provokes him to explain his reality. He has explored a range of media, including film, music, and now the written word, to help the general public understand exactly what it feels like to suffer from schizophrenia. By fictionalizing the day-to-day -day meetings of multiple personalities, he is illuminating a corner of psychiatry that few understand. As an author with schizophrenia, Harnish is ideally placed to share the unusual perception commonly defined as mental illness. Harnish is not dealing with an altered reality but a double reality, and his main characters, Ben and Georgie, perfectly illustrate how two lives can share the same body. Both Ben and Georgie are real people, but Ben is the only one of the two who has a birth certificate. It could be said, however, that Georgie is the only one who has a life. Ben exists on paper but would rather hide away. Georgie exists on the streets and in bars. He is the outspoken one, and Ben watches his successes from the shadows. Both men find themselves attracted to Claudia, Ben's alluring neighbor, but only Georgie has the confidence to approach her. The third wheel angst of Ben in this relationship forms the main plot of the novel. Harnish formed this groundbreaking novel as transgressive fiction. This is a genre that is probably most commonly encountered in the works of Jean Genet. However, you do not need a degree in literature to understand the plot because Harnish sheds light on it in order to reach out to the general public. The novel is not, therefore, a difficult read. The entertaining and accessible style of the novel has created a buzz around Jonathan Harnish. An Ali biography. 
Jonathan Harnish is a sufferer of cummerbit schizoaffective spectrum condition, and this is the inspiration for the plot of his novel. Harnish has explored the insights brought to him by his condition to become an accomplished mental health advocate, film, and TV producer, musician, and visual artist. PR Web UK Back to the book, prefatory note I open my eyes, and the room is on fire. Completely unconcerned, I, Ben, watch the fire grow larger and larger, then shrink and die out, revealing Georgie Gust, my alter ego, sitting on the matching mound of dirty clothes. I light a cigarette. I thought you quit, says Georgie. My nurse and doctor watch me, shaking their heads in disapproval. Kelly doesn't know about my obsession with Claudia Nesbitt, or, rather, Georgie's obsession with her. I haven't told her much about the spells that haunt me, either. I haven't mentioned a lot of things to her. I haven't mentioned how much I struggle to write anything original that comes from the heart. Or that all I hear is the chaos of the devil and the angels, and the voice of Georgie dictating my every word and action. That I'm nothing but a trust fund baby with an addiction problem, a constellation of lurid sexual fetishes that shrink into a petrified silence in the presence of any actual women, and a half dozen psychiatric diagnoses ranging from Tourette syndrome to schizoaffective disorder. Kelly doesn't know that I was taken into police custody for trying to rob a bank with nothing but a threateningly brandished cell phone and a reference to 9-11. That my father pulled some strings that landed me in rehab rather than prison. However, as part of one of the conditions of my release, that I must begin therapy with a court-appointed psychologist, Dr. C. I haven't really talked much about it. As I began to work in therapy, the issue that came into focus was that of Georgie, my alter ego, whom I'd conceived as living a parallel life to mine that mirrors and channels my own self-aware, yet foreign, emotional highs and lows. With Dr. C's help and encouragement in my own intelligence and determination, well, some determination and some pure laziness, I might peel away the layers of Georgie's existence, so that I might find the determination to hand over to Kelly all that I've kept inside, so she won't leave me, so that I can self-actualize and get over Claudia, and be honest with that bitch, with Kelly, and with myself to meander out of some of the confusion. After all, sobriety has not cleared up all the fogginess, it seems to have added to it, seems to have created fucking stockpiles of it. And as the pieces of my existence have begun to emerge, they've done so with an extremely uncomfortable, agitating, transgressive, and self-loathing clarity. The clarity is what's frightening me more than anything. In fact, I'm scared to fucking death of all this clarity. I want out of the labels. I don't want my whole life crammed into a single word. A story. I want to find something else, unknowable, some place to be that's not on the map. A real adventure. A sphinx. A mystery. A blank. Unknown. Undefined. Chuck Palahniuk. Dr. C's introduction, Dear Ben, what if you had such severe schizophrenia that your life was just one hallucination after another? And what if people kept trying to drag you back out of those hallucinations to prove that you weren't living in reality and that reality was nothing more than a psych hospital? Would you go?
would you make that leap back into reality, leave such a vivid life, for ceramic walls and metal gurneys? Dr. C. Dear Diary, Not everything has to be interpreted literally, often, a metaphorical interpretation is far more relevant and insightful, even if it's just some fictional nonsense. Introductory Clause, Subject, Perthesia and Parenthetical Pet Peeves. I sense a tingling, a fucking burning, and a prickling of Claudia's character defects, prickling my skin, by reason of her particular parenthetical pet peeves. This continuous tingling and numbness in my face and the back of my head, is what I feel. Therefore, it must not be unreal, nor is there any other reason so remarkable as to elicit disbelief. Claudia's parenthetical pet peeves are real and, therefore, worthy of a name. Claudia Nesbitt, no less than what is stated, as insubstantial as her being, but my dream and inside my dream. Example, Claudia especially hates when people add an E to a name ending in Y. Also, contrived spellings of common names. Dear Diary, history repeats itself. So does the present. Obsession is a state of mind, so make it good. The night is quiet and still now, and at the end, once I encountered all these people, Claudia, Heidi, Kelly, Georgie, myself, the fantasies of everybody, every place, and everything, and myself, they continued on. They became tragic obsessions. Let's get the facts straight up front, to avoid any confusion later. Georgie is an alter ego. I have several of them. It's a means of leaving some room in my experience to avoid growing entirely sick of myself. I sit in this room, in this house, because I've lost myself. I used to be alright. Back when I had a concrete hold on my place in this world or, at least, on the people who used to make up my life. I've gone downhill, rolling down with the light, feathery tumbleweed in our backyard. It's disgusting in here as mist and smoke linger throughout this claustrophobic bachelor pad. They say Ben's 30 now and that he's a split personality. Better put, a double personality, lacking true identity, lacking any sense of self. I don't agree. I am Ben. They say a lot. The voices and hallucinations. They say Ben's skinny because he smokes crack. He's alone. He's me. He's in this living room. The landline rings all the time, often quite a few times, and they tell me to pick up, so I do. Dear Diary, undoubtedly, we are all capable of doing something for 24 hours that would otherwise overwhelm us if we had to keep it up for a lifetime. We know this because we can breathe, can we not? Smoke break. To the reader, looking back looking back on it now, now that the words that come later can drain away most of the sentiment, there's a nostalgia that still lingers at the top of the Eiffel Tower, when those kids, three girls and two boys, defined who I was, without the slightest hint of bias or negativity. It was the first time in my life, the first time of my life. I was on a school trip in Paris with the same kids who would taunt me and bully me back in New York. And although I had forgiven them, even loved them to an extent, there was so much going on at home, and in my head, 
and in my body, that I couldn't tell the difference between what was good and what was bad, what was appropriate and what was not. Kids can be brutal. They say that those in the losers clubs in school will usually show up at the reunions, years later, as glittering icons, while the popular kids turn to waste. I never went to any of the reunions. I took a left turn by not going with my class. I got permission from the French teacher who was in charge of us to hang out with another group of kids from another junior high school. They were also in Paris from Nassau County, and, although I was away from my own crowd of popular kids, that particular crowd of waste, my new group of friends and I took off by metro that night after dinner. We climbed most of the Eiffel Tower, as it was still open to tourists, even at that late hour. As we gazed over the city lights, the brisk wind blowing hard, one of the kids, Wesley, who couldn't have been over twelve, all wrapped up in his ski jacket, his short, curly hair frozen, unaffected by the winds, smiled innocently at me, and as if it was his second nature, he said coolly, You seem pretty normal to me, Ben. Hey, you're one of us. And all the others bantered among themselves in agreement. I took a group photo of my new best friends, all of us arm in arm, holding on in the chill air and holding on to the memory of being so free, without supervision. Looking back on everything now, the world, the universe never looked as beautiful to me as it did during that cool breezy night on top of the world, where I was with my friends and nobody knew just how invincible we really were. Parenthetical pet peeve, the fancier the hairdo, the harder the wind will be blowing. I haven't a clue what happened on the walk back to the hotel and, by the next day, when Wesley and his buddies vacation meant they'd be back in the States by sundown, I had forgotten about it. I mean, I'd forgotten about everything. My introduction, and I went back to the in-crowd. They did what they did without me for the rest of the trip mostly drinking French beer from the mini-bar in the Hotel Chateau Martin. I find that the more I think about all that I can remember from that particular night out with the group from Paris, the more I constantly wonder if, by now, they've grown up. Or, have they just stayed the same, like in the picture I still have of them? It's under my bed, in an old shoebox, so that I can stay the same, somewhere, somehow, way deep down inside. Dear Diary, there are times I'll struggle and tussle with my inner demons. Other times we'll simply cuddle and snuggle together. It's a relationship that has both feelings of love and hate. There is a bond between us that remains ever strong, perhaps based on the myth or truth of general inherent goodness or purely due to all the variants of myself and any beast or such demons, real or unreal. My inner demons are within me, and oftentimes they end up being the ones who save me. I don't have such a need to be saved from my inner demons per se. To suddenly discontinue, dissolving and dissociating, breaking for a fairly ubiquitous cigarette, but to exist nowhere and do nothing, only like the fog and itty-bitty bugs, to exterminate all ambiguous thoughts for a moment. Please allow me to introduce my best-selling novel, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, a fictional memoir based on my own experience of dealing with schizoaffective disorder and post-traumatic stress. No, Ben. What I'm asking is, 
are you the vehicle, and Georgie rides around in you? That is why Ben's the driver, right? As its title suggests, Jonathan Harnish, an elite biography is actually based on my own experiences as a person diagnosed with a cummerbit schizoaffective spectrum condition. Ben and Georgie and Claudia were all part of my past, part of what has led to my becoming a writer. Ali Biography represents my first manuscript of appreciable length. Its target audience is adult readers who enjoy the transgressive style that best depicts the intricacies of a mentally ill mind. Jonathan Harnish an elite biography weighs in at roughly 250,000 words and is fully complete. How simple it is to see that we can only be happy now and that there will never be a time when it is not now. Would I trade my cummerbit schizoaffective spectrum condition? No way. Never. Too many gifts, like Georgie Gust and Claudia Nesbitt, come along with it. Synopsis of Jonathan Harnish an Ali biography Ben Schreiber has Tourette's syndrome, which causes him to display uncontrollable tics and hops, and to stutter and swear inappropriately. Bullied through his school years, he can never form strong friendships, especially with women. In his late twenties, he plunges into a downward spiral of drug and alcohol abuse, which culminates in an attempted bank robbery. After he is arrested, his psychiatrist, Dr. C quickly recognizes Ben's affliction as much more than Tourette's. Inside Ben's head lives Georgie Gust, Ben's alter ego. Georgie is obsessed with his manipulative but extremely sexual next-door neighbor, Claudia Nesbitt. Ben is desperately searching for the unconditional love he never received as a boy. He finds it easier to retreat into his mind to share Georgie's sick obsession with cruel and abusive Claudia than to deal with his real issues. It is up to Dr. C to help Ben face the buried terrors of his childhood so that he can finally let go of Georgie and reduce him to the literary character that the writer Ben wants him to be. Book 2 of Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, Freak, explores Ben's days at Wakefield. School is too traumatic, so Ben lets Georgie attend and take the abuse. The book explores Georgie's relationship with the original Claudia Nesbitt, the girlfriend of the jock Ozer, who tormented Georgie mercilessly. Claudia befriends Georgie and loves him for who he is. The other good part of Wakefield is Heidi Birilow's philosophy class, in which Georgie excels. Heidi encourages him to write an essay for the prestigious Winterborn Scholarship. Georgie discovers alcohol and is constantly hungover. He is arrested for drunkenness and bailed out by Heidi who keeps encouraging him. George wins the Winterborn Prize but loses Claudia to suicide. Book 3 of Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, Porcelain Utopia, explores Dr. C's interactions with Georgie and Ben. She thinks that dredging up Ben's past will somehow fix his present. Ben describes what went down at the holdup with the cell phone bomb. He describes being booked into the psychiatric ward. Ben develops a strong obsession with Claudia Heidi. Ben describes his first sexual encounters at age 10 in the Boy Scout treehouse. Ben describes some of his mother's abuse and neglect of him as a child. Dr. C points out that Georgie looks more like Ben's mother than Ben does. 
Ben is haunted by a demon that resembles his mother. He remembers being sexually assaulted by his mother at age 11. Book 4 of Jonathan Harnish, an elite biography, The Oxygen Tank, shows Georgie back in his morning routine of breaking coffee cups, falling in the shower, and of course, meeting Claudia for the first time. Georgie's house grows in size and grandeur with every dream. Claudia has an affair with Sir Tony Haldale and is caught by Georgie. Claudia is hit by a car and paralyzed. She then drowns when Georgie takes her boogie boarding on his boat. Georgie tries to kill himself. Ben is realizing that everyone is crazy in some way, not just him. Book 5 of the groundbreaking bestseller Jonathan Harnish, an elite biography, Glad You're Not Me, takes the act of transgression to another level. Harnish, the author himself, discovers he has been fictionalized as a character in an old friend's chapbook, and decides to come out of the woodwork as a real person, the mentally ill artist, in this explicit transgressive reaction chapbook. Book 6 of Jonathan Harnish, an elite biography, of crime and passion, explores romantic love through the story of John Marshall, who is taught by a prostitute that one can get everything one wants through seduction. John wants glory and personal prestige, and vows to get it by obtaining lowly positions in upper-class homes and then seducing the one woman in the household who has the most influence. He begins with Maribel Roman and ends with Claudia Sinclair. He discovers that seduction is indeed very powerful, but you must never actually fall in love. About Jonathan Harnish, author, publisher and vision a blend of a mentally ill mind with unsure past resiliency and fiery intellect and your result would be the brilliant Jonathan W. Harnish. An all-around artist, Jonathan writes fiction and screenplays, sketches, imagines, and creates. His most recent artistic endeavor is developing music, a newfound passion with visible results already in the making. Produced filmmaker and published erotic author, Jonathan holds a myriad of accolades, and his works captivate the attention of those who experience it. Manitone scripts with parallel lives, masochistic tendencies and sexual escapades, and disturbing clarities embellished with addiction, fetish, lust and love are just a taste of themes found in Jonathan's transgressive literature. Conversely, his award-winning films capture the ironies of life, love, self-acceptance, tragedy, and fantasy. Jonathan's art evokes laughter and shock, elation and sadness, but overall forces you to step back and question your own version of reality. Scripts, screenplays, and schizophrenia are the defining factors of Jonathan's life in reality, but surface labels are often incomplete. Jonathan is diagnosed with several mental illnesses, from schizoaffective disorder to Tourette's syndrome, playfully, he dubs himself the king of mental illness. Despite daily symptomatic struggles and thoughts, Jonathan radiates an authentic, effervescent, and loving spirit. His resiliency emanates from the greatest lesson he's learned, laughter. His diagnoses and life experiences encourage him to laugh at reality as others see it. Wildly eccentric, open-minded, passionate, and driven, Jonathan has a feral imagination. His inherent traits transpose to his art, making his works some of the most original and thought-provoking of the modern day. Jonathan is an alumnus of Choate Rosemary Hall, 
Subsequently, he attended NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, where he studied film production and screenwriting under Gary Winnick and David Irving. During his studies at NYU, he held internships under renowned producers Stephen Haft and Ismael Merchant. He is best known for his short films on The Boss and Wax, both of which boast countless awards, including five indie film awards, three accolade awards, and winner of the Best Short Film and the Audience Award in the New York International Independent Film and Video Festival, to name a few. Despite his impressive formal education and awarded honors, Jonathan is your normal, down-to-earth guy. Meditation, Duran Duran, Vivid Colors. Patrick Nagel Prince, and rearranging furniture are some of his favorite things. Vices include cigarettes, Diet Coke, inappropriate swearing, and sausage and green chili pizza. He enjoys irony, planned spontaneity, redefining himself, and change. Jonathan lives with his beautiful wife, Maureen on Fat Man Farms in the unique, desert village of Corrales, New Mexico. Prefatory note the reader is introduced to Ben Schreiber and his alter ego Georgie Gust, who is obsessed with Claudia Nesbitt. Ben indicates that he has not told his wife Kelly about Georgie, Claudia, or that he is nothing but a trust fund baby with an addiction problem and a constellation of lurid sexual fetishes that shrink into petrified silence in the presence of any actual women and a half dozen psychiatric diagnoses ranging from Tourette syndrome to schizoaffective disorder. He has been arrested for trying to rob a bank by brandishing a cell phone and referring to the September 11th terrorist attacks. He now must undergo psychotherapy with his court-appointed psychologist, Dr. C. He hopes to come to a point in his therapy where he can be honest about everything with Kelly, but he knows the journey there will be terrifying. Dr. C's introduction drive C raises the possibility to Ben that everything he experiences is just a series of hallucinations and that his reality is actually the inside of a psychiatric hospital. She suggests that Ben has a choice, leave the vivid world of his hallucinations or re-enter the sterile, ceramic world of the hospital. Introductory Clause, Subject, Perthesia and Parenthetical Pet Peeves Ben introduces this pet peeves, inserted in parentheses, thus, parenthetical. He says he used to be, all right, but now, at age 30, he is classified as a double personality, lacking any sense of his own self. He disagrees. He is self-aware. To the reader, looking back. Ben recalls being defined by fellow school children on a trip to the Eiffel Tower as normal and one of them. He clings to that memory so that he can stay normal somewhere within himself. Book One Lover and the Nobody 1. Prologue Georgie's Big Break Georgie Gus discusses his release from the psychiatric hospital with Dr. Abrams, claiming all his voices are gone, leaving only his Tourette's symptoms which are not committable. Dr. Abrams says he has been in touch with Georgie's therapist and wants to keep him at the hospital. Besides, with Georgie's parents' money, Georgie is a big-ticket item for the hospital. Georgie has a vision of killing Dr. Abrams violently and driving off in his car. Dr. Abrams says he will get Georgie's release paperwork together. Zero. 
Georgie Gus takes a stand. Georgie thinks about Claudia, the woman he loves and hates, his sex goddess and creepy nemesis. Georgie hangs himself to end his obsessive thoughts of Claudia. Zero. Proof you can go home again. Georgie returns to his country home. Ben is his driver. Georgie is a brand new man, with no Tourette's tics. Margaret, his only friend, who reminds them of their trip to meet the Dalai Lama, visits him. Margaret had found Georgie when he tried to kill himself and wants to know why he did it. Georgie describes growing up with Tourette's and being sexually abused as an infant by a nanny. Margaret suggests that maybe Georgie should try to find his old nanny to try to get closure from the abuse. Zero. Claudia moves in. Part 1. Georgie meets Claudia, who is his 40-year-old next-door neighbor. She and her long toes with flaking pink nail polish intoxicate him. Georgie is still the new man who has met the Dalai Lama. Georgie goes grocery shopping and encounters Margaret again, who reminds him to hunt down his nanny. Claudia has left him a note when he returns. The note refers to her cooling affection for him. Georgie wonders if they have met in another lifetime. He gives a completely naked Claudia a pedicure and foot massage in her bathroom and is sexually aroused by her feet. She gratifies him by rubbing his genitals with her feet. He awakens in Claudia's bathroom and abandons the happy self-sufficient Georgie that met the Dalai Lama. All he wants is Claudia and the joy-hate-love-torture sex she promises. He longs for a never-ending orgasm. She is a world on fire and Georgie needs that. He obsessively watches her from his house, using binoculars to focus on her toes. He runs into Margaret at the grocery store again. He drops his morning coffee, falls in the shower, makes new coffee in a lineup of ten espresso cups, wanders through his gloomy house and rechecks his grocery list of cigarettes. He thinks he has pushed Claudia out of the picture and he is back to being the self-sufficient Georgie again. Zero. Emptying his pockets Ben drives Georgie to an orgy held in a palatial mansion where Georgie completely indulges his foot fetish with a woman who resembles Claudia but has a mouth scar that makes her grimace rather than smile. He then crawls around on salt grains. The pain feels great. Ben asks why he hurt himself. Georgie tells Ben about the nanny that abused him, to explain his craziness. Georgie tells Ben he is seeing Claudia. Georgie returns to his house, but there is no message from Claudia and her house is empty. He stares at her house for days. He runs into Margaret again, who suggests they get together. He decides he will pretend he's not home if she shows up. Zero. Making account with Dr. C. Drive C. asks Ben who Margaret and Claudia really are in his, Ben's, world. Ben says they don't even exist in his world. She asks him what he gets out of knowing Georgie. Ben tells her that Georgie just appeared one day. He was Georgie and Georgie was Ben. Zero. Claudia goes deep. Claudia returns to her house. She tells Georgie she was fired from her job as a paramedic for having sex with her boss Greg and his wife Sarah. Georgie agrees to pay her for sex since she is out of a job and he needs someone like her. Zero. Ah, what a comfy web they weave. Claudia torments and tortures Georgie by handcuffing him, gagging him with a feather duster, 
and coating him with wax, then agonizingly removing the wax. He is horrified and in pain, but at the same time he feels peaceful and detached from himself. Claudia tires of the game and leaves him still bound and wax-covered. Eve passes out, coughing on the feather duster, then awakens to find himself free of the wax, duster, and handcuffs. Claudia has disappeared again and Georgie resumes stalking her house, watching for her. He fears he has lost her, and that causes him pain that gives him a sense of peace. Claudia returns and increases his pain by not visiting him. Georgie camps out in front of a window to watch for her constantly. His fear of losing her gives him bliss. Claudia pounds on his door, then becomes Ben's mother pounding on his childhood door. Claudia finds Georgie emaciated and almost dead and takes him to a hospital. He tells the hospital staff to release him, that Claudia is a paramedic and will take care of him. They return to Georgie's house, where she again tortures him, giving the pain he so desires and also threatening him with a pregnancy. The fear of Claudia not caring gives him the feeling of endless orgasm he is searching for. Zero. Practice makes perfect Claudia again disappears. Georgie heads for the grocery store and Claudia waits for him, knowing he needs cigarettes. She promises to call the next day, but doesn't. Georgie lines up and drinks his ten cups of espresso waiting for her. He goes to Claudia's house. The avoidance torture is too much. All he wants is the unadulterated orgasm again. Claudia is frying a sandwich and invites Georgie to sit on the pan for pain. He does, and sets his pants on fire, and then the whole house. Georgie again finds the everlasting orgasm while trying to put out the fire with his coom. Georgie, having destroyed Claudia's house, now invites her to live with him. Zero. Claudia moves in, part two. Georgie decides that having Claudia move in is the best and the worst thing that could happen to him. She cannot torture him with her absence, but now she can physically torture him constantly. He gets familiar with all of her physical idiosyncrasies, which is too much to know, but he also gets to torture her a bit, her pain causing him pain and therefore bliss. Claudia finds nothing but drudgery but has nowhere else to go and no money except what Georgie pays her. She finds new ways to torture Georgie, by making him think he is in a coffin and dying. He awakens in his own bed, not knowing if it was a dream or whether Claudia had let him go. He no longer knows what is real and what isn't. His mother invites them to dinner. Zero. Dinner with Augustus Georgie and Claudia have dinner with Georgie's parents. Claudia intends to torture Georgie with their disapproval and disgust with him. Having dinner with them is torture for Georgie. Zero. The fruits of his labor Georgie awakens in the street, naked, amid a crowd of people. Claudia is gone. He tries several different stores, asking to use a phone. He calls Ben, who drives him home. Claudia has hypnotized him and left him in the street, as a new form of torture, and Georgie has no way of stopping her from doing it again. The fear of her power over him is new torture, and new bliss. Margaret checks in on Georgie, having heard he was out naked on the streets. Claudia drives Margaret off, leaving Georgie without his old friend. Zero. 
It's all in a day's work Claudia and Georgie go out on a real date, which starts out full of happiness for them both. Georgie unconsciously flirts with the waitress. Claudia is furious and leaves without him. Claudia leaves a note for Georgie saying their relationship is over. He finds her in the bathroom in a pool of blood, but that is just a dream, which morphs into a memory of jealousy and Claudia's house fire. Claudia is actually lying in the bathtub next to a nearly empty prescription bottle. Georgie secretly hopes that she is gone from his life, but fears that she has. Claudia has been playing dead. Georgie wakes up in the closet and thinks he enjoys the nothingness he feels inside it. Claudia is miserable because she can't please him. He can't stand her misery. Zero. Calling for reinforcements Georgie meets Margaret again in the grocery store. He tells her he and Claudia are living in utter bliss. She asks if he has found his nanny yet. Georgie returns to find that Claudia has thrown an orgiastic party at his house. He realizes that Claudia only stays with him for the money, and he feels a whole new brand of pain. He dreams of torturing Claudia with a knife and awakens to find her cutting him with a razor blade. Margaret visits the house and hears Georgie's screams. Claudia tells Margaret that Georgie has not been well and sends her off. Two policemen visit due to a report of domestic violence. Georgie convinces them he has no intention of charging Claudia with anything. Zero. Dr. C goes deep drive C asks Ben why the driver's name is Ben. She asks if Ben is the vehicle and Georgie rides around in him. Ben says he doesn't know. It's a lot more complicated. Zero. Love can keep them together another dream where Claudia has dinner with the gusts, but this time Georgie is on a platter with an apple stuffed in his mouth. She awakens to Georgie squealing, still in pain from his razor cuts. She is tiring of the torturing because Georgie no longer represents every man who ever hurt her. Still, she's being paid to torture him so she will continue to do so. She goes out on her own that night and re-encounters Greg and Sarah, and brings them back to meet Georgie, who hides. He uses one of his security cameras to film Claudia having sex with Greg and Sarah. Georgie pays her double the next day. She plans to stick to sleeping around rather than torturing Georgie physically. Georgie goes to the grocery store in search of Margaret, but cannot find her. He returns to his sex clubs, where he won't find Claudia. He hopes that cheating on Claudia will eliminate his need for her, but the level of torture at the sex club cannot match Claudia's cruelty. He cannot feel enough pain. He has outgrown that level of sadism. Ben drives him to a new place run by a haggard old woman, who has sex with him on a smelly bearskin rug. Zero. Nothing but a brilliant... Bright prick of light Georgie awakens on the vomit-covered bearskin rug and flees the old hag. Ben drives him home. Claudia is not there, nor is Margaret. Georgie has only himself for reassurance and he is no consolation at all. Ben pities him. Georgie awakens and tries to get the hag's stench off of him. Claudia returns and he prays that she will go easy on him. He and Claudia have unprotected sex in the shower and again he fears getting her pregnant. He tells Claudia he loves her. She ties him to a dolly and shoves him down the stairs. He awakens to Claudia burying him alive.
he welcomes death. Zero. Damned if you do Georgie suddenly can breathe again. Claudia has given him CPR and revived him. Claudia swears to never hurt him again and says she loves him. Georgie is disdainful at her weakness. She asks him to make love. She is tired of hurting him. He pulls out just before she reaches a climax and leaves her. They return to their previous torture arrangement. Margaret arrives again and stays for dinner. She invites Georgie and Claudia to a play with her and a friend, Mandy. The play mimics Georgie, Claudia, and Margaret's life together, making each of them profoundly uncomfortable. Claudia considers how to drive the knife more deeply into Georgie. Zero. Hunting they will go Claudia takes a break from torture to allow Georgie to become complacent. She suggests that she, Georgie, Margaret, and Mandy take a vacation at Georgie's parents' cabin. Mandy cannot go, so Margaret brings her friend Carl. Ben drives them to the cabin and then drives away. Georgie isn't sure where he stays and doesn't care. He wants Margaret to fall in love with him. Georgie has a hallucination about Carl, Claudia, and Mandy, which morphs into Claudia, Greg, and Sarah again. Claudia morphs into Georgie's mother, abusing him, riding his penis, and then into the hag from the cottage, while Georgie reverts to a small child, terrified and not strong enough to fight back. The creature wants to be pregnant. Georgie cannot help but respond physically and has an orgasm that lasts an eternity. Zero. Wake up and smell the dopamine. Georgie wakes up to an angel, in the form of Margaret, who tells him he cut off Claudia's hair. Claudia had drugged him. Georgie, Claudia, Margaret, and Carl leave the cabin. The group amuses Ben. Georgie returns to his fetishes and Claudia returns to Greg and Sarah. Georgie returns to the hag's cottage but there is no one there. His dick is limp and useless. Like a boy's. He goes to the grocery store and meets Margaret again. She says she knows he didn't find his nanny because he is not any better. She insists that he has to see the nanny to get better and gives him a piece of paper. He tells Margaret that maybe he doesn't want to get better. He wants to tell her it's too hard. Zero, then, unto them Claudia is pregnant. Her morning sickness rids her of every rotten thing she has ever done to Georgie. Georgie comes home and wants to embrace her but steps in a pool of vomit and can only think of getting the puke off his shoes. He is not good with sick people. His shoes are more of a concern than a baby that may or may not be his. He tries to clean his whole living area free of her vomit. Zero. Claudia moves out. Claudia is gone and Georgie wonders how he was ever bored with her. She made his life a tortuous adventure and he has reverted to making his ten shots of espresso. He wants her back. He can't even find Margaret at the grocery store. The store manager throws him out. Claudia leaves messages on his answering machine about the conference she attended when she first met him. He wonders if he has imagined the torture and that everything is as it should have been all along. A message from Margaret asks if he has contacted his nanny yet. He finds the paper she had given him and goes to the address written on it. Ben drives him. He recalls the first, Claudia, 
a girl named Marie who taught him how to love, the clutching and the pushing away. He leaves, feeling that he and Claudia and their baby could live the American dream together. He can remake himself. He returns home, to be trapped in a noose by Claudia. He thinks that Claudia will be nice to him if he pays her to be. He doesn't want to play the games anymore, but the noose tightens. She tells him she has had an abortion and now she will kill Georgie. Zero. Waking up with Mr. Clean Georgie wakes up in a psychiatric hospital, in restraints. The psychiatrist Dr. Weinstein tells him he has no girlfriend named Claudia. Georgie is happy. No Claudia, she doesn't exist. She never hurt him. But if she wasn't real, then what is? The doctor tells Georgie he has been in the hospital for 15 years. Claudia, Margaret, the cabin, all have been a dream. But Georgie now thinks that it is the hospital that is the dream. The hallucination. He cries out and Ben answers. Ben tells Georgie that Georgie is his alter ego and is not real. Georgie hears Ben cry out, claiming to be Ben Shriver, and he wants a cigarette. Georgie smiles as he fades away. Book 2 Freak 1. The Road to Wakefield Ben, aged about 18, travels to Wakefield School, together with his alter ego Georgie Gust and Georgie's parents Pops and Rose. Pops tells Georgie that he must win the Winterborn Scholarship. He is attracted to a girl, a troubled teen. Zero. Settling in Georgie settles into his single dorm room, which he fills with philosophy books. He scratches his father's face off of all the family photos he has brought. He learns about a jock named Wyman. Zero. The birth of adult love Ben watches as Georgie attends school. Georgie writes a description of his perfect woman, Claudia Nesbitt, and Georgie falls instantly in love with her. Zero. Heidi Ben is remembering Heidi Barillo, a teacher who apparently morphs between Claudia and himself. She has a medical degree and will not teach at Wakefield for long. She receives a call from Dr. Winterborn about a student who graduated two years previously. Zero. School Blues Georgie attends Heidi's class. The troubled teen girl is there also. Heidi tells them about the Winterborn Scholarship, to be won by the best essay. The teen girl stares at him a few times. She is popular with the jocks Wyman and Ozer and Wyman's girlfriend Susan. Her name is Claudia Nesbitt. Ben has an alcohol abuse problem, which becomes Georgie's. The jocks tease Georgie imitating his Tourette's symptoms and nicknaming him Mr. Twitchy. Claudia doesn't find their antics funny. She befriends Georgie. Georgie finds the campus bar, the pen. Zero. The classroom Heidi holds her introductory philosophy class. She throws a piece of chalk out the window and then asks whether the chalk hit the ground. Most students, Georgie included, are not listening. Zero. Hungover Georgie gets drunk at the pen and spends the next day hungover in class. Georgie explains that he has Tourette's, but tries to explain his ideas on philosophy. Heidi is impressed. Zero. Talking through windows Heidi tells Georgie how well he is doing in the class and that he should enter the Winterborn contest. Zero. Mr. Twitchy Georgie is mocked and laughed at by the jocks, 
but not by Claudia. Georgie finds solace from his humiliation and hard liquor at the pen. Zero. Pushy boy Ozer makes out with Claudia, but she won't have sex with him. Zero. Bar cops Georgie now emerges from the bar, clearly drunk, and rapping to himself. Ben asks Dr. C, parenthetically, if she could diagnose him with a disease so he could have a label to put to who he is. Zero. Fuck the bar cops Georgie continues with his rap, fuck the police, even when he is nabbed for drunkenness by two cops. Heidi bails him out. Zero. To the rescue Heidi tells that drunken Georgie he needs to get his life in order. Zero. Passed out Claudia sees Heidi drop Georgie off at the dorm. Ozer tells her Georgie is only there because of a need for diversity in the school. Georgie is locked out of the dorm and climbs up the drainpipe, which breaks. Claudia runs out to check if he is hurt. They run to elude the campus security. They spend the night outdoors at the top of a bluff and watch the sunrise together. Georgie tells her it's where he comes to cry. She chides him for wasting his time getting drunk and arrested. He puts a foot over the edge of the bluff, as if he might walk off. Zero. On the edge of something? Georgie reassures Claudia that he wouldn't really walk off the bluff. Not until he is famous. He tells her he is going to be a famous writer. Claudia asks him why he can't stop drinking. Zero. The new day Georgie apologizes to Claudia for the day before. She is happy she saw the bluff at sunrise. Georgie confesses that he drinks so that he doesn't feel alone. Claudia responds by saying no one is ever really alone. Georgie explains his Tourette's symptoms. Zero. At the pen at night two college girls invite Georgie to a threesome. Zero. Back in business Georgie attends class and finds spirits after his night with the two girls. The class is to work in pairs and Georgie is left the odd man out. Claudia joins him. Heidi again tells Georgie he is doing well and should enter the winter-born competition. She invites him for lunch. Zero. Grave company Heidi and Georgie have lunch in a cemetery. Heidi asks Georgie why he is hung over again. He says it's because he is a rebel and doesn't conform. He says he doesn't know what he wants but doesn't want his Tourette's devils to control his life. Heidi says that everyone has his or her own demons. Zero. There's no place like. Ozer asks Claudia what's up with her and Mr. Twitchy. She insists they are just partners in class. She blames him for not showing up to class on the day partners were chosen. Zero. Misery loves company Georgie keeps a flask of alcohol under his mattress and carries it with him now to the bluff. He finds Claudia sobbing. She asks him why he smokes and tells him she would care if cigarettes killed him. The two reveal that they are only at Wakefield because Dr. Ozer, the jock's father, pulled strings to get them in. Zero. A good thing Georgie tells Claudia he hates his father. She tells Georgie she loved hers but he committed suicide. She says she prays to her father and believes he hears her. Georgie says his parents never hear him or see him, even though he's right there. Claudia shows him a misdated coin that is worth much money because it is a freak. Just like Georgie.
The two decide to forget the pressures they are under and just relax together. They run in the meadow by the bluff and then attend a street fair. Claudia admits to being pressured by Ozer to have sex. She and Georgie kiss and Ozer catches them. Claudia claims to have had sex with Georgie. Zero, once, twice. Georgie thinks he might just enter the Winterborn competition and begins his library research. He observes Ozer making out with Susan, Wyman's girlfriend. Ozer is still furious that Georgie was with Claudia and crushes Georgie's hand with a book as a thread. Zero, truth, lies, and lunch Georgie and Heidi have their weekly lunch at the cemetery. She is the first adult that Georgie has been able to talk to. He tells her he is off his medication and feels good. She tells him he makes her feel young and alive. Georgie is going to title his Winterborn essay, On Bad Faith. Heidi asks what happened to Georgie's hand. She tells him he reminds her of her sister who had cerebral palsy but was also very bright. She tells him he has a lot to offer the world. Georgie doesn't know what to say. Zero. Detention Georgie has detention for being late to class because of his hangovers. He spends the time lying on his back listening to classical music. Zero. Rocks for Jocks Heidi's class talks about bad faith. Pebbles tossed in the window by the Jocks are pelting Georgie. They throw a rock that smashes Georgie's glasses and injures his eye. Claudia tries to soothe him but Georgie erupts, tossing his books, desk, pencils, and anything he can grab. Ozer and Wyman are suspended and removed from the upcoming lacrosse game. Georgie continues his rampage and destroys his dorm room. He tries to apologize to Claudia later but she is furious that he treated her like he treats everyone else when she thought she was his friend. Georgie reassembles his room but can't sleep. He starts to write about his own existence. Zero. Something positive Georgie and Heidi have another lunch together. Georgie is even more on edge than usual. Heidi sees that he is no longer smoking. Georgie tells her he quit drinking too. He focuses on writing. Zero. The big game Wakefield loses the lacrosse game, with Wyman and Ozer on the sidelines. Georgie continues his writing, oblivious to the game. Zero. A slight change of plans Georgie no longer has detentions. He has lunch again with Heidi and tells her that he is writing his essay for the Winterborn and that has replaced his need for cigarettes and booze. She informs him that this will be their last lunch together as the school is reconsidering her tenure because she appears to be favoring Georgie and Claudia. Georgie's room is broken into and his computer knocked over. His essay is still intact. But he retitles it, Apart From Me, and runs from his room. Zero. Jump Georgie goes to the bluff to cry. Heidi finds him and tells him he can't run from himself. He tells her she can't know what goes on inside him. All she sees is the external issues about Tourette's. He runs to the edge of the bluff but she doesn't try to stop him. She is tired of feeling sorry for him. She tells him to flaunt at and laugh at his problem, because he can't be beaten by something he can laugh at. Georgie appears in and participates in Heidi's class that afternoon. Zero. Peacemaking Georgie continues to work on his Winterborn essay, 
which is now clearly an autobiography. He is tying his life story into the concept of bad faith. Claudia stops by to tell him it was her dad's birthday. Zero. A twisted tree Claudia disappears from the school. Georgie races to the bluff and finds Claudia's freak coin. He finds Claudia hanging from a tree. Zero. How the shite hits the fan Georgie is devastated by Claudia's suicide. He starts smoking again. He meets Ozer at the pen and tells him that he, not Ozer, loved Claudia. When he returns from the pen, Heidi is waiting for him. All Georgie can think of is Claudia, and it is interfering with his writing. He considers leaving Wakefield. Claudia has left him a letter that tells him she is happy to be free from living the charade that her life had become. She asks him to be happy for her. Georgie resumes writing. Zero. The other ending Georgie wins the Winterborn Scholarship. Georgie credits Claudia for his win. Heidi informs him that she is leaving Wakefield. He introduces her to his parents. Book 3 Porcelain Utopia Part 1 Dr. C. Meet Benjamin J. Schreiber Unfinished intro Buffered off a thought drive C. asks Ben what his goals are for his therapy. He doesn't know. He just knows that the New Age self-help books he's been reading aren't helping. Slingbacks out of my deepest of pockets drive C wears sling back, open-toed sandals that cater to Ben's foot fetish. She said she is going to make Ben love himself. Ben reveals that he has been seeing psychiatrists since he was 12 and was diagnosed with ADD but then finally with Tourette's. He thinks Dr. C is delusional if she thinks he will ever like himself. Ben has writer's block. Retirement? Ben sometimes stops writing when he's in love, but that is lover's lock, not writer's block. This instance of writer's block has lasted 18 months. He hasn't written a thing. He senses Heidi and George are both in the background somewhere. He wants Georgie back. Georgie writes back Ben gets rejection letter after rejection letter. Georgie returns and tells Ben to relax and sleep things will be fine. Dr. C meets Ben, a written account from Dr. C. Dr. C says she's never had a client like Ben before. She did not like Ben because he was rich, late, and dressed eccentrically. He made a bad first impression. She admits that some of his eccentricity was due to his Tourette's, but her bias still showed and Ben picked up on it. He admits that even he doesn't like himself. Dr. C recovers her professionalism and tells him that she is going to help him to love himself. Cutting class drive C asks Ben what he remembers about his school days. He tells her about Georgie instead. Ben at first discriminates between his life and Georgie's life, but then slowly melds them together, confirming that he and Georgie function together. Flashing forward to yesterday Ben recognizes that Georgie and he share the same person, and that they can't place themselves anywhere. Georgie chooses only to go to Long Beach, California, New Mexico. The only time he follows Ben is if Ben goes back to school. Ben still seeks his lost inner child that was damaged by his parents. Ben and Georgie are now in Long Beach and Ben wants what Georgie has. Ben wants Claudia. Long Beach, the hub of the warp drives he wants to know what the name Claudia Nesbitt means to Ben.
He says it is between Georgie and him. When Georgie sleeps, Ben experiences time warps and nightmares. Housekeepers are a blessing Georgie is too nice for his own good. Dr. C wants to know why people take advantage of Georgie. Georgie doesn't feel crazy, but how would he know if he was? He keeps thinking about Claudia Nesbitt and how he loves her and how he hates her. He hopes she dies so he can stop being a good guy. Georgie is talking to himself. He doesn't wonder if he's going crazy. He just wonders how crazy he is. Restaurant Love Ben dreams of Claudia at a restaurant. Ben morphs into her waiter, as Georgie. Georgie obsesses on people, mostly. He loses himself in a fantasy world for as long as he's obsessed with them. The next morning, Georgie starts his routine with Claudia while Ben sleeps in, thinking of Claudia. Ben makes oatmeal. Georgie finds a clean shirt. Georgie is alone and invisible. He doesn't feel. He doesn't exist. He's not needed. He breathes. He thinks, but he is not. Georgie wants to say he doesn't care about this, but he does. Part 2. From Wakefield to Rehab Dr. C made me do it. Ben has an appointment with Dr. C and rambles on. Ben has been diagnosed with Tourette's, schizophrenia, and other diseases, so he doesn't trust doctors. What really happened drives he wants to dredge up Ben's past to fix his present. Ben explains how he came to attempt a bank robbery, because his father froze the funds in his trust account. He is arrested and put into rehab. Mantle Ward Snuff Ben describes Betty, one of the ward nurses, who checks him into the mental hospital, and his first night after admission into what he categorizes as hell. Wax melts Ben meets Heidi. His Heidi, not Georgie's, whom he's met in a gift shop parking lot. Ben obsesses over Heidi while Georgie lives with Claudia. He is attracted to a girl bagging groceries, who makes him daydream about Claudia and he morphs into Georgie, who is now in a coffee shop, watching Claudia enter. Claudia recognizes Georgie but nothing has happened between them yet. It's a new version of their meeting for the first time. Claudia asks Georgie if he wants to sleep with her and they go to a motel for sex. Part 3. Getting Clean with Dr. C. Pregnant with the idea of Georgie Gus drives C asks Ben who Georgie is. He can't answer her because he is not sure himself. Ben knows that he imagined Georgie a lot more once he started writing about him. Georgie became everything he hated about himself. He also doesn't know if writing is therapy or if it is the source of his disease. He doesn't know if his cure involves the death of Georgie. Or Claudia. He imagines a scenario where Georgie would be born, his scared and lonely childhood, his Tourette's diagnosis, and his heavy drug use. He describes a mystical experience where Georgie is possessed by a sense of supernatural beauty. Then he describes Georgie crying as he writes. He is transfixed by something supernatural, mystical, and sexual, like an orgasm that his past transforms to. Writing his story does this for him. Ben recognizes Georgie as part of him. Ben spies on his hallucinations while Georgie lives them. But Ben wants Claudia. She is his stereotypical woman who will end his loneliness. What got me here Ben? 
In the psych ward, is full of self-hatred and loathing. The psych treatment has made him see himself for who he really is. He is tired of the bull's height. He doesn't want any more learning experiences so he can learn to love himself. Taking it to the cleaner's Ben is finally cleaning Georgie out of his head, but he wonders what happens when he kills him off in a literary sense. And what happens to Claudia? Ben realizes he has to stop fantasizing about her and wasting his life. He starts to realize that he is the author of these fantasies and if he says they are fact, they are, including Claudia. Georgie misses Claudia because she kept the house neat. Ben recognizes Georgie as the scapegoat. Everything is Georgie's fault and never Ben's. A chance encounter, reality? Ben encounters Heidi in a convenience store parking lot. She is in town for a psychiatry convention and decided to get her nails done. He gives her a pedicure in her hotel room. They meet and walk in the neighborhoods and along the beach. Heidi encourages him to write. She skips her conference class and has a bath instead. Ben joins her and gives a foot massage. Ben finds his writing block has gone. The Emperor Concerto Second movement now Georgie's day takes over. He craves some different routine but his day proceeds just like all others. Ben wonders why he has given Georgie, whom he now views as his literary creation, so many issues. In the parallel midst Ben sees Georgie's driver Frank drop Georgie off in a secret desert location. Georgie is studying New Age books, intending to do the exact opposite of what they recommend. He checks into a nudist colony and participates in a foot fetish orgy, but it no longer satisfies what he needs. He then crawls on salt crystals. On the way home, he tells Frank about his nanny who abused him. Georgie is looking for an endless orgasm because during an orgasm it is like he doesn't exist. Georgie's home is my home. Georgie's living room contains photos of his past girlfriends, awards, trophies and travel posters, as well as intellectual books, all in three copies, as are his video and music collections. There are many unfinished drawings and paintings that show Georgie's brilliance. His past seems rich and full. Everything is placed according to obscure mathematical relationships. Coming to Ben sets up cameras in his New Mexico home so he can record videos of him at home from all angles. Don't be afraid to let them show Georgie attempts to use a camera to record Ben. Ben tells Georgie that he feels itchy and dirty. Georgie tells him to take a shower. Ben has new meds and wants to get back to writing. Office bathroom Ben imagines ultraviolet blue boils on his thighs as Georgie heads him to the shower. In the shower, water off Ben is filthy and his skin has yellowed. Georgie helped him take off his clothes and shower. Ben longs for some strange disease so he can overcome it and feel he has done something, and then maybe everything. History of Sex Ben is in his guest house, which is a crack den, which he shares with his former crackhead zombie selves, the nameless movie director, the fit and slim jogger, the successful stockbroker, and the poor homeless guy. Georgie joins them. Umbrella makes me spread my wings. The zombies copy all Ben's moves. He finds and opens an umbrella and they do the same. Ben's umbrella is shredded and he gets soaked. The zombies' umbrellas are fine. 
Ben can't light his crack pipe because it's wet, but the zombies won't give him a light. The zombies watch Ben in disapproval, except for the homeless guy, who continues to copy Ben, who lies down on a mound of dirty clothes and pizza boxes. Georgie appears, with a crack pipe. Ben reveals that he has a wife Kelly, who knows nothing of Georgie or of Claudia. A series of zombie wives appear, followed by the real Kelly, whom Ben calls his living colorful beauty. Claudia also appears as a zombie. The phone rings incessantly. The zombies turn into policemen who chase Ben in the streets of Albuquerque. He falls and faints and wakes up again in the crack den. Part 4 Dr. C meets Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean Ben Benji is 11 and his old house in suburban New York is being torn up. His mother makes him stay inside with her. Pops is divorcing Rose and she can't stand to be alone. Benji sees an albino jogger run past his house every day. It's a hallucination that only he sees. He thinks Mr. Clean will be there for him someday, like his pops no longer is. Dr. C meets Mr. Clean Drive C urges Ben to write as therapy. She tells him to write the gross, obscene, sexual stuff first to get it out of him. Ben's wife Kelly tries to keep him to a routine to help him. He has no idea how stressful living with him might be for her. The rest of his family just wants to control him and set him up in rehab. Second Skins Benji is in 6th grade sex education class. Ben learns the words that come to mean so much to him later. A man ahead of his time Benji offers his first porn at age 9 from his dad. He buys his first magazine at 10. Boy Scout Brothel Ben and his friends set up a sex club in a kiddie brothel. Ben and his friends never graduate beyond their sex roles set up at this time. But in childhood they were invincible. Ben develops a fetish for latex condoms. He feels all his sexual preferences were divinely selected for him. Ben wonders how a good little kid like him ever became involved with a perverted sadomasochist like Claudia Nesbitt. Except that they were a perfect match. Two doomed tortured souls. Ben Georgie becomes obsessed with the agony she causes him. When he thinks he has gotten her pregnant, Claudia admits she doesn't love Georgie and will be raising his son with another woman. Ben realizes she isn't the woman of his dreams. The real Ben emerges a week later. He tries to convince himself that he and Claudia can raise a baby together. Claudia tells him she cannot have kids. Her tubes are tied. Love Beyond Dignity Ben awakens from nightmares, as he always does, where love and happiness are misery and emptiness. He used to be such a happy kid. He had dignity. Now he has love without dignity. Therapy Georgie reads up on mental disorders to find out what is wrong with him. He realizes that past hurts and being taken advantage of now prevent him from moving on with his life and being happy. He instead turns inward to his fantasies. Mother's naked friend drives. He asks Ben when his fascination with older women started. He explains how his mother used to parade his Tourette's to her friends to gain attention and sympathy and as an excuse to avoid playing racquetball with her friends. Benji accidentally sees one of his mother's friends fully naked at the racquetball club. Ben says Georgie is the one who is hung up on the childhood sex thing. 
mother's lava soap and explains how his mother groomed him for borderline personality disorder. He figures that he must still be that traumatized kid. She would swat him with newspapers and wash his mouth out with soap for his Tourette's outbursts, which he could not control. He wonders if the pumice from the lava soap started his foot fetish. Dr. C tells him it is part of his self-esteem problem. Waste. Notes on Ben's novel when Ben falls in love with Claudia, or Heidi, he vows to sober up and become a better person, but he doesn't know how to succeed with Claudia. He writes about Claudia, but he cannot put his feelings into words. They muddle up his thoughts. He wants to stop his meds, but he loses his sanity when he is off them. Ben is still obsessed with Claudia. Georgie's affair with Claudia has shattered the whole heart and soul of the desperate, lonely man who just wanted to replace Heidi with Claudia. Family reunion Georgie attends his family reunion at the Hamptons. Without words, he's desperately begging somebody from the inner family circle, the one that controls it all who is loved, to turn on some secret switch in the invisible boardroom that will turn the tables around again for him. That will make him feel good. He will even love himself again then. He still wants to feel some new and positive things, good things that will last for the better. But that switch was never even there to begin with. First date with perplexity Ben imagines his first date with Claudia. Georgie steps in and goes on the date. They have sushi at a restaurant. Georgie tells her he has schizophrenia. Claudia doesn't mind. From the inside Georgie wonders if Claudia has ever been miserable. She always seems to have good luck. Claudia mentally tortures him. The slow fade out Claudia has abandoned Ben. He needs a story to work on to have a new beginning. The themes would be death, loneliness, and despair. End of November Ben cannot let Claudia go. Georgie is not around to act for him and Ben has succumbed to Claudia's torment again. Georgie wants to have sex with someone else so Claudia won't be his last one. Claudia, Heidi, my perplexity Ben realizes he never learned how to deal with conflict. If a conflict arose in a relationship, he ended the relationship. He moves out of his house and into a full-service apartment where he'll be free to be completely alone. He sees Claudia everywhere now. Ben can see himself in the mirror now. More from Waste, a novel by Benjamin J. Schreiber. Ben is off his meds but the writer's block is gone. He knows Heidi lives next door, not Claudia. Heidi can balance the chaos. He takes her to dinner and she talks about all the men she dated and slept with. Ben and Pops Ben remembers a time in sixth grade, before Georgie, when he and his Pops were alone at home. His mother and sister had gone on a vacation. Pops and Ben have gone on a father-son ski trip. They laugh together and have fun, but Ben knows he has to go back to his mother and her torment eventually. Pops leaves Rose soon after, and Ben never has another father-son experience. Alter Ego Claudia Georgie's nightmare at noon with his new meds working and the writer's block gone, Ben feels rushed. Therefore, 
Georgie takes over and clears the remnants of Claudia from his house, but the visions of Claudia are too strong. She rapes Georgie in her desire to get pregnant. Georgie wants to break up with her, but she won't let him go. Easy steps to a perfect pedicure, deja vu, Ben takes one pill and Georgie reappears. This time Claudia is a neighbor in Long Beach who has just broken up with her girlfriend and it is Halloween. The pedicure fantasy begins again. Ben remains as Ben, and he knows that he will strike up a relationship with Heidi in Long Beach. Ben sees the premise for a big novel, a living, colorful beauty and borderline personality disorder. He's making it. Rehab and mother Ben tells Dr. C that his mother visited him in rehab. His one fear is that he'll end up looking like his mother. Tight curly hair and obese body. Dr. C asks if Georgie, with tight curly hair and obese body, is patterned more on Ben or on his mother. Ben considers it a stupid question. End the violence Ben's mom is a bully. Ben's father allows him to go to boarding school as a teen and his mom is furious. She hits him repeatedly and finally he hits back. He leaves for college a worthless piece of shite who needs a new mother. Second Skins with Footnotes Drive C asks to know more about Heidi. Ben says she is his obsession. She changed his life, but not in a good way. She brings back Georgie, who has Claudia as his Heidi. Claudia is the essence of every woman Ben encounters. Benevolent Georgie Georgie has some genuine goodness despite his overall unwholesomeness. He sees beauty in every woman, he is generous with money, he buys food for the homeless, and he picks up trash. Georgie likes Dr. C, even though he knows she thinks he doesn't exist. Georgie knows all about Ben, even if Ben doesn't know all about Georgie. Georgie also knows it's Ben who can't get over Claudia. Georgie also knows that the sadness and despair stems from Ben's mother, but Ben lets no one know her. No one. Part 5. St. Valentine's Day Massacre journal, Ben can't tolerate his current symptom, paranoia. All he can think of is his writing. He doesn't want downtime, free time, or Georgie time. He thinks everyone around is listening to him and suspiciously spying and snickering. Police sirens and helicopter noises come and go as he drives. His medication makes him dizzy. Higher doses give him hallucinations, which he craves. He still craves Claudia but wants to be free of her. Ben wants to discover himself so he can make his mark on the world, but he knows his excuses, medical maladies, and baggage of abuse, neglect, and life limit him. He wants to leave a profound message for the world. A Valentine reminder Ben remembers the real Claudia, who died, and how he brought her back to life with the help of Georgie. Claudia explains that Ben was just too high maintenance for her. She couldn't take care of him. Funeral Ben fantasizes his own funeral. He hears all the women he knew speaking about him. Most said he was complex and funny and unpredictable. His funeral is held at a crack house. Ben begins to meet himself, thanks to those who once shared his life. He has broken up with another woman, Melanie. Ben reverts to Georgie in Georgie's home again, with the awards and trophies from Georgie's past life. Ben admits to buying them. 
and lives other people's anonymous lives. All he wants is to be someone. The narcissist Ben believes he will die in the next 15 days. He has to write down his thoughts before it happens. His thoughts about himself. The nausea, coughing, anxiety, paranoia, loneliness, bitterness, and nostalgia that make up his disease and his existence. The orange button Ben is addicted to change, so he visits hotels frequently. He experiences insomnia and paranoia, and sees his own funeral again through a spy camera in the room. Broken-hearted Jubilee Ben has had enough of excesses and enough of habits and addictions, fears and phobias, money and resentment. He visits Fat Ann, a good friend from a Tourette support group. She no longer wants to be his friend because he is selfish. Ben has a dream where a character, Lisette, acts like he does in Claudia's real life. He treats her with disdain, a disdain he also holds for himself. Ben looks to Georgie to understand life and overcome his selfishness. Dialogue with self, after the funeral, Georgie believes he doesn't matter. He's shy. He is becoming just words, writing, and a metaphor. He wants mutual, reciprocated love. He worries. If I stop thinking of me, will I still exist? Halloween Georgie's brain starts to process thoughts again. Strange voices ask him many questions about who he is and what he wants from life. The new way to feed solitude Ben just wants his own version of who he is. He wants solitude. To be left alone. He finally is able to release the past. He also realizes that everything is genuine, imagined, perceived, or experienced. It all defines him as a man. He is just like everyone else. He's doing just fine. Is this a new beginning? Ben the author finally has a good idea. On a flight somewhere, he introduces himself to a fellow passenger as Georgie Gust. Part 6. Rest in Peace Support this troop Ben talks to Dr. C about the jogger, Mr. Clean, again. Ben thinks his mother was having sex with the jogger, who was young enough to be her son. Dr. C finds it interesting that only Ben can see his mother in the jogger. Demons Ben's apartment has demons. His computer boots and shuts down on its own, even when unplugged. Bathroom lights flash and water runs. He looks online for an exorcist and finds Reverend Jezebel Constanza, who conducts an exorcism. The demons are worse than ever afterwards. He thinks it wouldn't be so bad if he weren't so alone. Georgie isn't alone with his demons. He's out with different women every night. He has dedicated himself to getting Claudia out of his system. Georgie and Dr. C. Georgie is the only one to show up at Dr. C's next session. He's frantic. Dr. C wonders who Georgie is when he isn't Ben. Georgie needs someone who loves him, someone who can touch his soul. But he'll never have that. He needs peace. Mother Ghost Ben shares his bedroom with the demons. He is visited by his mother angel older woman at night, who climbs into bed with him. He knows the woman, his mother, his angel, and his lover, is an illusion and tries to ignore her. She tells him she is haunting his house with memories. She encourages him to shoot himself. Ben has a memory of being age 11.
his mother comes into his bedroom, crying that his father is leaving her. She abuses him sexually, leaving him traumatized. To the shore drives he watches Ben drive away in a taxi and recalls the first session she had with him. She has succeeded in getting Ben to say hello and goodbye to Georgie Gust and, of course, Claudia. Part 7, Postscript Meanwhile, back at Ben's New Mexico ranch, Ben writes furiously now in his New Mexico home. Ben J. Schreiber Ben submits a short story for publication. He wants Kelly to understand. Checking the mail Ben receives a rejection letter that criticizes his use of Georgie as a hero. He has written 43 chapters about Georgie and Claudia. He obsesses over why he can't get anything published. Dr. C told him that Georgie is not a real character. He's just an alter ego stuffed with all the feelings Ben refuses to feel. On Kelly Kelly is Ben's editor and is very supportive of his work. Another living colorful beauty? Ben writes Kelly a letter that ends up focusing on the negative and how pathetic he is. Kelly replies that she loves having him as part of her life. Back to the heat Ben writes to Kelly again, this time questioning the value of his written work. Kelly again supports him and tells him she loves him. Fortune the fortune teller sister Clara has sensed something about Ben and has drawn images of Ben's grandmother, aunt, nursery school teachers, and nanny all abusing him as an infant. This discovery explains to Ben why he is so fucked up now. He goes home to Kelly, but Kelly is not there. Inside Ben is being monitored at home rather than admitted to a psych ward. He thinks he may finally have found himself. Book 4 The Oxygen Tank Soliloquy, for Dr. C. Ben is out of rehab and writing as therapy. Ben has told Drive C that he has scuzzy blue movies playing in his brain constantly, starring Georgie and Claudia. He doesn't tell her much about the movies. He thinks psychiatrists are crazier than he is. Part 1. A Day in the Life of Georgie Gust Georgie lives out his typical morning. Breaking his coffee cup falling in the shower, making his ten cups of espresso. His neighbors wonder about Georgie and Claudia. Georgie arrives at work six hours late and then does nothing there. At home again, he erases the mark next to, gets cigarettes on his marker board, and then rechecks it. The next day Georgie and the new age woman meet, while both singing, a day in the life. The new age woman is Claudia. They check into a motel and reality blinks out. Part 2 Another day in the secret life of Georgie Gust. The motel room is empty. Georgie is in his yard. His message machine records a message from Claudia. Georgie is now walking along a beach, looking disheveled and downtrodden. Claudia's voice sounds on his voicemail. Claudia is at a lecture. We are revisiting the early days of Georgie and Claudia. Claudia encourages Georgie to tell his story. Georgie starts another day, awakened by the arrival of a Mexican cleaning crew. Part 3 Living the American Dream Georgie and Claudia live in an enormous McMansion, which they are having remodeled. Georgie asks Claudia to marry him. She takes the enormous ring from him. This is really what marriage is like, like they say. Only mutual self-interest with a hint of disgust and loathing. Part 4. 
The End of a Dream? Georgie and Claudia's McMansion is even huger with the new addition, but inside all is not well. Cracks are appearing in their romantic dream marriage. Georgie goes on a business trip to Vegas, refusing to take Claudia with him. Claudia meets up with Sir Tony Haldale and starts an affair with him in her home. The next morning, Claudia calls her friend Amanda and asks her urgently to come over. Sir Tony Haldale is dead in Claudia's bed. Georgie calls on his way home from the airport. He'll be home in 15 minutes. Georgie arrives and Sir Tony walks down the stairs, looking for his high school sweetheart Claudia Nesbitt. Part 5 The crack of the marriage is on the rocks and the posh mansion begins to disintegrate. Over time, the house totally falls apart and Claudia and Georgie disappear. Georgie returns to it, followed by Claudia a few years later. They resume their marriage. Georgie begins another day, trying to sort out his relationship with Claudia. Claudia walks on Georgie's street with Sarah, whom she introduces to Georgie as her wife. Claudia later ties Georgie up and rapes him, to get herself pregnant. She confesses that she never loved him. Georgie tries to kill himself. Part 6 The flashback flashbacks to Georgie meeting an older woman while both sing Hotel California. Claudia is on her way to get her nails done. Georgie ends up giving her a pedicure. At home, his message machine plays messages from aboard Claudia, tired of her lectures. Georgie makes love to her feet in a cheap motel room. Georgie sets down to write the first installment of The Secret Love and Death of Georgie Gust and Claudia Nesbitt. Part 7 The Fantasy I, Claudia and Georgie are the fond-loving couple on the beach. The scene changes to Georgie, alone, beating himself up, pretending he's Claudia. The scene changes again and Georgie is invited to watch Claudia and Amanda have sex. Greg and Sarah watch too. The scene changes again and Georgie and Claudia have coffee together at a yuppie coffee house, where they discuss the intricacies of modern American life. They have stolen $50,000 and are eluding the police. They split and promise to meet up again when the coast is clear. Claudia boards a plane and never returns to America. Part 8. The Fantasy 2. In a different city, Georgie and Claudia are different people. They meet for the first time in an elevator in Georgie's swanky apartment building. Claudia is French and speaks with an accent. They carry out an old-fashioned European romance, complete with billet D.O.U.X. Part 9 The Secret Love and Death of Claudia Nesbitt and Georgie Gus Georgie's current fantasy mansion is the size of an airport. Claudia is a natural beauty set against the gardens. Georgie proposes to her and on their honeymoon they consummate the perfect pedicure. Claudia is hit by a car and paralyzed in her torso and legs. Claudia tells Georgie to pretend she is dead and to marry Cleo. Georgie vows to stay with Claudia. He takes the paraplegia Claudia boogie boarding on his boat and she drowns. Georgie the CEO of Georgie Gust Enterprises takes it all in stride. Part 10 Down and Out with Georgie Gust Georgie is now a homeless derelict. He enters a luncheonette, where waitress who is Claudia serves him. Georgie starts up a conversation with Mr. Wilton, 
another customer, about success in business. Georgie helps two young teens cope with their grief at the death of a friend. He points another young man in the right direction to respecting his girlfriend. The scene changes and Georgie is a successful businessman. He has a revolver in a brown paper bag. The scene changes again and he is on a bus. A Walmart version of Claudia sits beside him. Georgie expounds on mental illness with the other passengers. He tells his psychiatrist about the bus ride. Georgie says he told the Walmart Claudia, It just seems like, I told her, all my years at Wakefield, and all my years at Harvard, existed for the simple purpose of proving to me that I was an utterly absurd person, no different from any other absurd person. No different from her or anybody else, because we're all absurd people, see? Part 11, Epilogue. The waxworks Claudia is dead and Georgie sinks his whole inheritance into a wax museum where he can immortalize Claudia. Georgie is married to Cleo but he is enthralled with Claudia the waitress. He gets Amos, his wax museum designer, to use Claudia the waitress and the model for Claudia the wax museum showpiece. Part 12, Coda. Benjamin J. Schreiber writes to Dr. C. Bend explains how his schizophrenia causes him to have blue and hardcore porn movies playing in his head all the time. He is just a spectator and has no control. Georgie, Claudia, and other characters show up in the same crazy scenes keep playing. He thinks that they sometimes are trying to tell him something, like maybe the whole world is stupid, meaningless, and empty. Codex. Dr. C. writes back to Benjamin J. Schreiber Drive C. tells Ben that many people feel that the world is crazy and that their lives are pointless. Dr. C. tells Ben that Georgie and Claudia are showing him that everybody needs someone or something to make the absurdity mean something by learning to laugh. Appendix Final Q&A session between Benjamin J. Schreiber and Dr. C. Drive C. explains how no living woman could live up to Georgie's expectations of the perfect Claudia Nesbitt. Book 5 Glad You're Not Me The author Jonathan Harnish is a mentally ill artist who suffers from constant sleep deprivation. He has seen improvement with new medications and is still married. He hit bottom in 2006 and his family took over his life. He writes as therapy for his Tourette's and schizophrenia. The passages included here show the thought patterns and brilliant phrasings that a schizophrenic mind can generate, unfettered by rules of realism. Book 6 of Crime and Passion Prologue 1 Marcy No, John Marshall meets the beautiful Chantal and experiences his first sexual encounter on his 18th birthday. He tells Chantal that his goal in life is to achieve glory. She gives him a small portrait of Che Guevara and tells John that Che succeeded by seduction. Chapter 1 Father Patrick puts John, now well studied, forward for a position as a tutor for the Roman family. Chapter 2 John's father is livid that his son is going into service for the Romans. He banishes John from the home. Chapter 3 John meets Clyde Roman at the mansion and his beautiful wife Maribel. John sees that Maribel is his seduction target. He gains her favor by promising never to beat her children if they do not learn their lessons. Clyde Roman suggests that if John's work is good enough, Roman may eventually set him up in his own business.
He gives John a used suit to replace his peasant clothing. He meets the children, Ramy and Christian. Chapter 4 John begins his tutoring of the children at the breakfast table, further impressing Maribel. Chapter 5 John is the main attraction at a dinner party. He performs by reciting Bible passages. Roman offers him a two-year position as language teacher and caretaker, but John turns him down as the agreement would bind him but leave Roman free to dismiss him at any time. Chapter 6 John encounters two youths that he went to school with. They are jealous of his success. They beat him up and leave him seriously injured. He is found and nursed by Maribel until he regains consciousness, and then is cared for by the maid, Lauren. Chapter 7 John is healing well a week later and again is invited to attend the dinner parties. One guest, Harold Lawrence, insults the communists and John is enraged. He goes to his room and looks at the portrait of Jay. Lauren arrives to take his one suit to clean for the next day. Maribel checks in on him and finds him in his underwear, with Lauren attending. John wants to reassure Maribel that he would not touch another woman, but he cannot. Lauren thinks she has claimed John as her own. Chapter 8 John now travels with Maribel to do errands in town. She asks if he is happy, and he confesses that he still wants a position with more purpose. Maribel informs him that she is about to come into a small inheritance. She offers him a gift of money for being so good to her children and tells him to buy more clothes. Clyde Roman and incensed when Maribel tells him that John refused money. Such rudeness from a servant. Roman gives John more money and John accepts it. Chapter 9 Father Patrick visits to tell John of some good fortune. Lauren wants to marry him and Father Patrick is interceding for her family. John refuses her, stating that he wants to marry for love. Maribel makes a final plea on Lauren's behalf but John still refuses. He tells her he does not love Lauren. Chapter 10 Mr. and Mrs. Roman heads to their home in the Hamptons, taking John and the children with him. John is overwhelmed at the grandeur and size of the mansion. The children chase butterflies and John convinces Maribel to join them. It begins to rain and Maribel and John take shelter together under a tree. They are both intensely aware of the attraction building between them, but John is also aware they are in full view of the house. That night, during his prayers, John reveals that his plan is to steal Maribel's heart so that he can cockle her fool of a husband. Chapter 11 John confesses to Maribel about his secret obsession with Jay. He begs her to protect his secret from her husband, who would fire him, or worse, if he knew. He tells her he has a portrait in a box under his mattress. He tells her to look for the box but begs her not to look at the portrait. Later, he asks her if she found the box and gets a slight nod. Chapter 12 The Romans are entertaining Mr. Calvert and Mrs. Driscoll. John informs Mr. Calvert that John's friend Seth has offered him a partnership and that friendship with Mr. Calvert could be beneficial. Maribel is dismayed to hear that John is considering leaving. He tells her that at 2 a.m. he will come to her room to tell her something. He seduces her that night. Maribel asks who the portrait shows. Who is her rival? John tells her there is no woman he loves more than he loves her. 
Chapter 13 Mrs. Driscoll Leaves Roman tells John that the senator will be attending the town's annual parade and it is his job as mayor to prepare the town. Patrick has asked that John assist him in the church service. John also is invited to participate in the parade itself. These are two high honors in the town. Some of the townspeople, particularly the Lawrences, are not amused that the tutor gets to play politician and priest on the same day. It goes against separation of church and state. John goes to Maribel's bed again that night. He tells her he loves her and she returns his love. Chapter 14 Mr. Roman is livid the next morning. He hurls a newspaper at John and asks how he could do such a thing. John leaves the room without finding out what it is that Roman thinks he has done. John assumes that Roman has gotten a letter from someone suspicious of John and Maribel's relationship. Maribel comes to John's room that night, but he does not open his door to her. Maribel shows her husband a note left at the gate about John and demands that John be sent away. Roman thinks she is being foolish. Her husband points out that banishing him would just confirm the rumor. Maribel tells him that Lauren and Mr. Lawrence may have had an affair and that she too had received letters from Lawrence. Roman strikes his wife and goes in search of the letters. John decides it is time to leave. Chapter 15 John goes to a priest, Father Peter, in a nearby county. Father Patrick has put in a good word for him, suggesting that John be offered a scholarship. John will be going to New York City with Father Peter. John will be personal secretary to a businessman, Mr. Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair sends John off to buy new clothes. John is given a desk in the library. Mr. Sinclair tells John he is expected to dress for dinner. He meets Levida, Mr. Sinclair's wife, his son Norbert, and his daughter Claudia. Chapter 16 Claudia comes into the library but scurries out when John spots her. He goes riding with Norbert. John has lunch with Mrs. Sinclair and Claudia, and fears it is one of his duties. He asks Father Peter if he could have an allowance to eat lunch elsewhere. Mr. Sinclair is carrying out an experiment by having John dine with them and wishes to continue it. Claudia finds John amusing. Chapter 17 John goes to the opera. Mr. Sinclair then hears that John is the son of a Texas oil merchant, according to the opera goers in the next box. John insists that he did not start the rumor, but did nothing to prevent it from perpetuating. Sinclair tells John to go to the opera every evening and stand in the vestibule when important people are exiting. It is important for him to become recognized. John goes to a party at the Devons. Claudia is the belle of the ball. John is winning her over by being the opposite of the young men of her class. John's friend Seth is also at the party. Chapter 18 Claudia visits John in the library. He treats her coldly. He then visits the rooftop garden and is again joined by Claudia. He tells her that he finds her intellectual conversation stimulating but he doubts that the man she is about to marry will have the same view. Claudia pretends to sprain her ankle so that John must put his arm around her and help her off the roof. Claudia later gives him a slip of paper. John does not reply to Claudia's letter, so she stomps into the library and gives him a new letter demanding that he meet her on the roof at 1 a.m. They meet and kiss passionately. 
Chapter 19 The next Sunday, John helps serve Matt with Father Peter. Claudia avoids John. He confronts her in the pool room and she kisses him passionately when she sees he is jealous. John goes to her bed that night. Claudia cuts off a lock of her hair and gives it to John, vowing to always obey him. John tries to leave the hair behind but Claudia insists he take it. He avoids Claudia and she accosts him, telling him she no longer loves him. Chapter 20 John receives a parcel containing a huge stack of letters. John makes Claudia jealous by flirting with her friend Louisa Charles. He visits Louisa the next day and goes to the opera. Chapter 21 John receives a letter, which Claudia rips from his hand. He embraces her and apologizes. They make love that evening. Claudia has been miserable for the month that John has avoided her and never wants to experience that again. She asks John to elope with her to Vegas. He asks how he will know she still loves him, once she is disgraced. She informs him that she is pregnant with his child. John is called to see Mr. Sinclair the next morning. Sinclair is indignant that his grandchild will be the son of a tutor. Claudia tells John that if he leaves, she will leave with him. He escapes and flees to Father Peter, who has a letter for him. He has been made a partner in Mr. Sinclair's hotel. He is being brought into the family. Chapter 22 John meets Claudia in Central Park. He is leaving on private business. She begs to go with him but he tells her to wait for him. John visits Seth, who asks if he has found love. John says he has found passion. John tells Seth of a dream he had where Seth was a woman named Margaret. John returns to find Claudia distraught. Her father has received a letter that has caused him to revoke his permission to marry and to remove John from his new position. It is a letter from Maribel. She claims that John seeks out and seduces the woman in the household who holds the most power in order to advance his own position. John dreams that the love of his life shoots him in the head. Chapter 23 John returns to Father Patrick's church during services. He shoots Maribel. He is arrested, jailed, and sentenced to death. Claudia visits him and tells him that these do not need to be his final days. No harm was done. She is willing to help him escape. He sends her away. Another visitor comes later. It is not Claudia but Maribel. She was not killed by the shot. John asks Maribel to look after the child that Claudia bears. Bonus Notes Jonathan Harnish, the author, describes through his own personal experiences what it is like to be a schizoaffective individual and how he has taken charge of his own life and overcome many of the challenges his disorders have forced him to face. Lover and the nobody I believe that anyone suffering from any type of mental illness is one badass motherfucker. Nothing is more terrifying than battling with your own mind every single day. So, get ready for this. Lover and the nobody is not for the faint of heart. Enter the literary playground of the wildly eccentric author and all-around artist, dreamer, man on a mission, and human being just like you who also suffers, like all of us in one way or another, to some degree. The author, oui, c'est moi, l'auteur, the third person, laughs as he writes this, but hey, we're all for sale in some way.
But actually, I'm all over the place. I'm in my head, my imagination, and my moment. Comfortable here, comfortable nowhere. Have I already lost you? Awesome. Keep reading. I'm not in the marketing business. After all, I do what I do, as they say, and I change. All the time, often taking delight in the touchy topic of madness, for example, in this brand new, raw, brutally honest, and extremely palpable psychiatric thriller that is part fiction, part truth. Noted scribe featured in Publishers Weekly and Writer's Digest, among other literary publications, and controversial mental health advocate, Jonathan Harnish, Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, 2014, Second Alibi, The Banality of Life, 2014, Sex, Drugs, and Schizophrenia, 2014. The four-time number one Amazon best-selling author and number one writer of hot new releases under the subject of schizophrenia, introduces his, yours, asks Dr. C, in my throbbing, labyrinthine head, yes, mine, debut novel, perhaps my piece de resistance. Jonathan Harnish, an Ali biography, is now being taught at the university level for its inspiration and vivid feelings of a disturbed reality, which is sometimes disquieting, other times harsh, and with real emotions, it is culture-bearing, brazen, and bordering on brilliant, blam. Here she is, for ten bucks US, with all royalties donated to charity through the Jonathan Harnish Foundation. Boom. Lover on the Nobody, where Ben Schreiber, voila, say moi, said Jonathan, has Tourette syndrome, causing him to display uncontrollable tics and hops, with a stutter, swearing inappropriately. Bullied throughout his school years, he can never form firm friendships, especially with women. He's simply incapable of happiness. In his late twenties, he plunges into a downward spiral of drug and alcohol abuse that culminates in an attempted bank robbery using a cell phone as a fake bomb. He is arrested and placed under psychiatric evaluation, where his psychiatrist, Dr. C, quickly sees Ben's affliction as more than just Tourette's. Ben is not alone. Inside his head lives Georgie Gust, Ben's alter ego. Georgie is obsessed with his manipulative and extremely sexual next-door neighbor Claudia Nesbitt and shares a sadomasochistic relationship with her that is supported only by his obsession. Claudia has no love for Georgie, and while Ben desperately searches for someone, Claudia Nesbitt, the perfect woman, will provide him with the unconditional love that he never received as a boy. He finds it easier to retreat into his mind to share George's sick obsession with the cruel and abusive Claudia than to deal with his real issues. Dr. C senses that Ben is suffering from some type of post-traumatic stress that occurred early in his childhood, and that he is using Georgie as an escape when bad memories start to surface. It is up to Dr. C to help Ben face the buried terrors of his childhood so that he can finally let go of Georgie and reduce him to the literary character that writer Ben wants him to be. Alas, if you don't have this book in your library or classroom, what do you have? Get your copy now. P.S. I never said I was normal. I suffer, I move on. I laugh, I cry. I write it all out and never give up. Sending light and love, from me, 
Mr. J.